Welcome to the Bike Pack Adventures Podcast. I am your host, Chris Panaski. This podcast was created so as to share the stories of bike tours, bike packers, and endurance cyclists from around the world as they embark on amazing adventures. Through their stories, you'll be able to learn the ins and outs of bike travel. You'll get insight into various countries and cultures around the world, hear fantastic stories of their journeys. Through both mine and my guests' experiences, you'll learn about the pros and cons of specific gear, bikes, and bike setups. If you're new to bike travel and considering going on an adventure, I hope the podcast provides you with that extra little bit of motivation to make it happen. I want to thank Panorama Cycles, Redshift Sports, Restrap, Race Day Fuel, and Brockton Cyclery for supporting Bike Pack Adventures and helping to keep me on the bike. Check out the show notes for more information about these amazing companies. Thanks and keep on pedaling. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Bike Pack Adventures podcast. Man, things are weird right now uh, in this household, particularly not not in the whole world. Well, I guess kind of the whole world is kind of weird too. Um, <laughs> I uh, oh, what was I gonna say? Yeah, I haven't actually been doing anything. Like I feel like I've done nothing these last few days um, because I've been on like what essentially equates to twenty four seven baby duty. Yeah, my wife got COVID. And then her mom caught COVID. And uh, that just kind of tagged me back into to life as a father. <laughs> I was just getting used to having her mom kind of take control of everything. And <laughs> I just play with the baby once in a while. But now I'm back on uh, full time. And since her mom caught COVID, we moved the, the portable crib downstairs. So the baby's sleeping right now behind the couch, which means I can't really watch TV. And uh, all I really want to do is ride my bike, but the bike is also here in the basement or the fat bike's outside, but then nobody's watching the baby. So I I can't even ride the bike. So instead, I'm just going to produce a podcast episode. That's that's also a pretty good thing to do. A good way to 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 make the most out of my time. Yeah, I recently had a call with my my cycling or my my bike training coach. Uh, Peter Glassford of The Consummate Athlete. And actually, we also recorded a podcast this week, so that'll be released uh, sometime in the next week or two, presumably. Um, yeah, while we recorded that episode, I guess my mother-in-law was upstairs finding out she had COVID, and, but she was really nice and didn't say anything until after I finished the episode, which went like an hour longer than I I had told her, even though I knew it would be closer to two hours um (laughs) so yeah that was really nice of her because she wasn't feeling good and you know she should have spoke up but she didn't and so I got it done which is great hold on I'm gonna have a sip of this whiskey since I'm on my own in the other in the utility room doing podcasting what else am I gonna do but drink a little bit of whiskey soda although I just told my coach I wouldn't drink anymore for the month at least um but I'm gonna cut the beer out have a have a, a couple fingers of hard liquor once in a while. It's not going to kill anybody, that's for sure. <clears throat> yeah, I'm really kind of bummed, actually. I was supposed to release an episode today. I was going to release an episode I recorded with this guy named Chris Lee. He was from the UK. And a few years back, he cycled across Canada with 
one slash two buddies, you know, one guy joined them for part of the way. And we had a great conversation and, and this podcast had been delayed a few times because just as we're about to record, the audio was really bad and he was going to get a microphone from a friend. And then the next week I had to cancel for some reason. And then the next week after that, he canceled. Then his partner got sick. And, you know, so it eventually it ended up being like five, six weeks later, we recorded it. And when I came to edit the episode and go through it, there was just something isn't good with the audio on that one. I can't get it to be good. I've tried everything. I tried um, amplifying and limiting and noise reductions, but there's still some weird clicky humming noise in the background that I can't get rid of on his audio. So for now, I just can't release it. I'm going to try to go back. I'm going to try to go back and um, do it again, like re-download it. Um, but one of the things is with this roadcaster that I use, I have it set so that it takes both tracks when we're talking and when I'm talking with a guest and it immediately, you know, does a compression, a noise gate, noise gate, meaning it cuts out the lower sound frequency, the lower frequencies such as like, you know, um, furnaces and stuff. And, a few other things. I forget what. But anyways, it does it all at once and then it puts them into one file. So both our voices are together. So it's really hard for me to isolate a a, a weird sound from his audio. Yeah, I just don't know how to do it. So unfortunately for the moment, I'm going to not be able to release that episode. And that's the first time in almost four years where there's an episode where I really say to myself, I can't release it. You know, like I messed up a bit with Gene's a few episodes back, um, I did fix it. I, I realized that the audio, I had to amplify his a few times and limit it, amplify it um, to get it to be up to the same level as mine. But it worked out in the end. And I had one episode a few years ago where the person was in like oh, Ecuador or something. No. Um, yeah, maybe it was Ecuador. They were in like Ecuador and, oh man, I forget what was going on. There was almost like a civil war at the time. They were in this like little border town, a horrible, horrible hotel with terrible connection. Um, yes, I mean, it does happen every once in a while, but I've always been able to release them in the end. Like, you know, um, but this one, it was just, I don't know. I'll have to have another go at it, but it kind of bums me out because, you know, I put a lot of effort into not just preparing the uh, the podcast interview, but to, to tee up with somebody and, you know, and he put in a lot of time too. Like we, we really went back and forth and that's what really sucks, you know, is because there were several times where we were supposed to, to record where one of us had to cancel and that's part of the, part of the game, you know, it happens, but it's just really unfortunate that in the end, I'm not sure if I'll ever be able to release it. Um, so yeah, anyways. I will I will spend a bit more time and try to see what I can do with that. So Chris Lee, if you do hear this, um, if you haven't heard from me already, I do apologize. And uh, I will do my damnedest to, to figure it out. Um, on to the next thing. Yeah, I mean, I, I can't stop talking about the Canadian Shield Bikepacking Summit. I'm super stoked. There is a new date. So if you haven't noticed and if you've been kind of keeping an eye on things... Um, 
I have pushed it by one week to June 10th and 11th, uh, to the June 10th, 11th weekend. And that is because I managed to secure a much better venue. So after some discussions with some friends, actually who I'm going to highlight today uh, as presenters at the summit, um, through discussions with them, you know, they had some past experience stuff, this stuff, they highly recommended you have like two spaces, right? You have the space where the, the presentations are happening and then you have maybe the space where the sponsors are and stuff where if people want to go chat, they're not talking over the presenter, right? So you're not in all one room. You have a you have a, a larger venue. And I knew just a space that I needed for that to happen and that would be the Meredith Center in Chelsea because not only does it have a huge hall that can actually be broken in half so you have space for sponsors to have booths or tables and displays and whatnot, but it also has a lounge area just outside the presentation hall. It's also got a bar area with like high tables and stuff where you can sit down and uh, also socialize or have a drink and stuff. Most likely we're going to have a bartender. Um, I, I think definitely it's going to happen. I, <laughs> I'm just trying to figure out if they're going to provide the bartender or if I will. So we're kind of working that out. So just it's a really good space, you know, and they have a fire pit outside with benches and stuff so we can have fires at night as well and stuff so it's going to be really really awesome and uh really good for the social aspect of it all right so you actually can meet people and then have like a little seat and talk whatever life bikepacking um all that fun stuff maybe you'll meet somebody you'd get married have kids that ride bikes who knows um if that happens dude do let me know i want to i want to promote that (laughs) um yeah so it's been really cool I've been really busy though. I've like I've had to register a business, so because you know, with cost of tickets and stuff, it brings in quite a bit of money that's got to be moved around and pay for things. And so, yeah, bike pack bike pack adventures has officially become a business. Well, it's personal business, so it's under my name, anyways. But um, yeah, it is a registered business, which is weird to to think. But hey, I guess it's part of the part of the process. What else have I been up to? I've been engaging lawyers to to write and draft waivers like things i've never thought about so i I really gotta also give a huge shout out to mark uh and heather of hurton and halliburton so he's helped me out a lot with this because we talked about like you know i was like hey man how did you get waivers he's like oh i actually got a lawyer because it's a pretty serious thing and you want to make sure that you know a liability waiver waives liability and it's not just a bunch of words on paper (laughs) Yeah, I'm sorting out insurance for the event now that I have a registered business. I can get insurance for it. I'm starting to think about restaurants to cater for the the Saturday night dinner and uh, both lunches. Figuring out the costs of snacks and coffee and whatnot. And also trying to design an event jersey at the same time, which is kind of coming along. So I've I've actually got a company working on that. which another friend told me who he had make his jerseys. And that's awesome. Actually, Mark also told me who did his. And so I'm checking out a few different options there. And um, yeah, it's not a tedious process. It's mostly fun. Um, yeah, I got to say. And as I mentioned before, uh, the presenters are lined up. And for the most part, all of them are confirmed. I told you, I think on the last episode, that Megan Hakkinen is going to be the keynote speaker. And I'm super, super stoked about that. But I'm going to slow roll it and actually just kind of tell you about one new set of presenters every 
every episode, but I guess you could also just go to canadianshieldbikepacking.ca slash summit and you could find it all out anyways, but I'm just going to do this anyways. Why? Because it's my podcast and I do whatever the hell I want. So the next presenter or better yet presenters, I should tell you, are Eric Betteridge and Jennifer Adams. And just to let you know a little bit more about them, I'm going to read the bio that they have submitted to me to put on the website. So here it says, in 2022, Jen and Eric bikepacked 7,000 kilometers, including Grand Departs on the Tour Divide and the Log Drivers Waltz, and a time trial on the North of Seven 770. In 2019, they were amongst the first few riders to complete the Butter Tart 700. So that positive first experience following a curated bikepacking route piqued their interest in route development. Having completed many multi-day bike trips in the Lanark Highlands of Ontario and the Udaway region of Quebec, they knew they had the knowledge of place necessary to create a quality bikepacking route, one that would showcase the region, contribute to the growing bikepacking community, inject tourist dollars, and foster connections between locals and riders. Importantly, this would be a challenging route that riders from Ontario, Quebec, and New England could access without extensive travel. The result was the 800-kilometer Log Drivers Waltz, which they released in 2020. To support rider development, they soon added 10 shorter, more accessible routes. Jen and Eric believe there are hidden gems to be discovered in all localities, and it is by sharing well-curated routes that bikepacking route developers can share this knowledge with riders from near and far. They continue to collaborate with the other route developers in Ontario, across Canada, the U.S., and Europe to discuss common challenges and successes and contribute to the greater bikepacking community. And you can reach them via their website, Log Drivers Waltz. So, yeah, I'm really, really stoked to have them on board to, to share all about bikepacking in Ontario and their experiences. And I think uh, there's a lot to take away from it. What else? What else? Last thing. I think just a couple things left. Um, so I'm really aiming to start selling tickets by mid-January. But I'm just trying to finalize the event jersey before I can do that as I want it to be an option on the sales page. So that way it's there. And if you want to just kind of do it all at once, you can. So anyways, guys, thanks again for your patience, I should say. This has been quite a huge learning process, but I'm, uh, I'm trying to do everything possible to make this as an amazing an event as I can, where we can all learn from, you know, extremely experienced people like Megan Hakkinen and Jen and Eric and more. You'll find out later. All right. If you are not supporting me on Patreon yet, or if you like the podcast and you think, hey, I'd like to help Chris out, you can go to patreon.com slash bikepackadventures and you can find me and you could select a tier and kind of just give a little small monthly contribution to help keep this podcast going. It's not necessary. I mean, obviously, it is a free podcast. I'd love it if you can go on to whatever podcast uh, platform you use and give me a five-star rating. That would be wicked. Those also really help to to help with growth of the podcast. And on top of that, you can also share the episode with somebody in your family, a friend maybe, uh, a loved one, somebody who you know that likes bikepacking, maybe even somebody you don't even like, but you're like, I think they'll like this episode, so I'll send it to them. That would be amazing. I would really appreciate it. And I'd also like to give a big thank you to Reinhardt Bagel for his continued support with the occasional one-time donation through PayPal. So he he shot me a little something this past week once again, and it's really, really appreciated, appreciated Reinhardt. So thank you so much. Now, on to the podcast intro. In this episode of the Bikepack Adventures podcast, myself and Nathan Starzinski dive into his 15,000-kilometer adventure crossing Canada, 
while mostly following the transcontinental trail. Funnily enough, about two weeks before recording this podcast, Nathan and I had a chance to meet up for coffee in Chelsea. The day before, he was going to be catching his flight to Europe to continue with his world bicycle tour. Nathan's cross-Canada adventure is quite unlike any I've heard of before. Rather than follow the straighter, more common routes across Canada, he decided to more or less follow the TCT, even though it meanders all over the place and would pretty much double his cycling distance across Canada. This off-the-beaten-track route across Canada allowed him to see many amazing sights along the way while still continuously driving him closer to his goal of reaching Cape Spear. Nathan, welcome to the Bike Pack Adventures podcast. Hi, Chris. It's good to be here. So, um, yeah, let's jump right in. Tell us a little bit about yourself or, or lots about yourself, where you grew up and all that fun stuff. For sure, yeah. So my name is Nathan Starzinski. I'm currently uh, 28 years old. Uh, I grew up in Ottawa, Canada, uh, so you're very familiar with that. And then when I was 17, just before I turned 18, I moved out to Vancouver, BC to go to university there. I studied film production at the University of British Columbia, and I actually spent uh, 10 years living in the Vancouver area through North Van, Vancouver, Kitsilano, Mount Pleasant, East Van, uh, all the areas of Vancouver, essentially. And just now I've started uh, long-term touring. Okay. And um, living in Vancouver, did you do any like big biking there? Because, you know, I know I when I was there, I did the Triple Crown, which was like Cyprus and... I forget Cypress, Gross, and Seymour. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I've never actually done the Triple Crown. It's not my style road riding so much. Fair enough. Uh, I did commute to class in university. Uh, when I lived off campus, I actually did, uh, I think it's the fastest way to get around Vancouver is to do what I call the bike bus, is to put your bike on a bus for the long distance trips and then uh, take your bike off and rip it around in between when transit would be a slower time. Uh, so I rode to class every day and sometimes rode to university, depending on how far it is. Uh, but yeah, didn't really actually do a lot of biking okay. in that time period. I, I was more into skiing and running and various other sports. Okay. And um, now into the longer touring. So did you grow up in kind of like an adventurous family or what was it like growing up in Ottawa? You know, uh, I mean, uh, I'm kind of kind of from <laughs> Ottawa, but like I grew up in yeah. Trenton mostly. So. Yeah, I know you've only been there for a, co- a couple of years now. Um, no, my family is super outdoorsy. I, I grew up basically outside. I did uh, scouting for a long period. I think it was close to 13 years. Uh, so I've, I have a background in all sorts of uh, outdoor activities. Uh, as far as bike touring goes, uh, it actually runs in the family. My dad has done quite a bit of bike touring in his past. Uh, he's gone and done the Pacific Coast Highway. He's done the Dempster Highway. He's done the Atlantic provinces and probably more that I need to ask about. So I'll have to get, get around to that. Yeah, yeah. And um, when he would have done the Dempster, it would have still been mostly like completely unpaved. Like now it's chipped. Chip and tart or chip sealed or whatever you want to call it. Is it chip and tart now? It it probably would have been unpaved. I was actually up there. We did a family vacation in 2007, and I remember it being, uh, I mean, it's the kind of dirt that the second it rains, it it turns to mud. I remember it being. I think it's done. There were snow plows. Sorry, go ahead. (laughs) There were snow plows with kind of like steamrollers attached to them that they would run up and down the highway to actually flatten it out. Oh, wow. So that people wouldn't be being stuck in, you know. Six inches of mud. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I think it is done, except for that last part up to Tuk So, Oh, um, well, that's good to know. Yes. It's going to be a faster ride when I get up there. But I've heard it can be pretty bad anyways. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's beautiful. That's what you're going to go up there for, right? So, mm-hmm. yeah. I think the coarseness of the rocks, too, it kind of just chews up your tires. So I've heard oh, if, you, if yeah, you go up there, everything. yeah, if you go up there, even people with like, you know, 
uh, camper van things or, you know, like, what do you call them? Overlanders. They're saying, like, oh, yeah. bring an extra set of tires because there's a very good chance no you're going to. Yeah. Yeah. You're pretty far from services <laughs> up there. There's only a couple gas stations, you know, a couple hundred clicks apart. So, yeah, you got to be definitely self-reliant when you're out in that area. Okay. And um, did you guys ever do any touring as a family or? Uh, not too much that I can actually recall. I think my dad tried to convince me to get into it. But as a kid, I don't think I, I was so much. Uh, we did a lot of canoeing, actually, as a oh, family, cool. canoe tripping. Um and general camping, car camping in the summers all the time. We did quite a bit of uh, road tripping around Canada to go visit national parks and provincial parks. So I do actually have a history of seeing a lot of Canada already. Mm. Um, but yeah, it wasn't actually until until I guess I was about the same age as my dad was when he started bicycle touring that uh, I got the bug as well. And what age was that? And then uh, that would, well, I actually started bike touring the year before this one. So I would have been, is it uh, 26 okay. when, I, when I did my first uh, long tours last year. Uh, but we did do actually some touring when I was in junior high school. It was a Montessori school that I attended. And on one of our last weeks of classes, we had all our gear shuffled and we did a bike trip from just west of Ottawa from Carleton Place down to Amherst Island, which is near Kingston. Okay. Uh, spent a day on Amherst Island and then biked back to Ottawa. Uh, I think it was about 80 to 90 kilometers of biking per day. How many days? Uh, for a whole five days. Oh, five, uh, five days. days yeah. uh, four days of biking with the one rest day in the middle. So, oh, cool. yeah, that would have been when I was about uh, 12 or 13 years old. So I do. <laughs> I guess that's, maybe that was my intro to long-term biking. That's pretty awesome. I mean, I can't imagine many schools doing that these days. Like, you know, maybe. For sure, yeah. It was definitely a unique thing. Yeah, I, yeah. I don't hear about anybody doing that. And, you know, especially nowadays, uh, I mean, you hear a lot about uh people are very cautious and especially having your kids out in a big group on a road, uh, maybe people wouldn't be so inclined, but it's actually still running nowadays. Um, my dad now actually helps, uh, guide it. He's, he's oh, retired cool. and, uh, the teacher who originally ran it, I, uh, I'm actually not sure if he joins, but I think my dad goes and, and still does it. Okay. But I, and I, I mean, on the same note, you could probably <clears throat> do most of that route without ever going on like, roads for the most part because you could take like the cataraki trail and then at oh i forget the name of the town where it kind of heads down towards kingston but then you could jump on the kmp and there's yeah probably yeah, sure. i mean i was actually i did that part of as what i as part of what i rode this summer and okay. it would be definitely doable all off-road and that new trail i think it's called the algonquin trail that connects the cataraki to smith falls uh is oh, okay. you know basically like a straight shot of yeah. uh of lime dust gravel. It's really, really nice. Oh, I didn't know they've already got it done. That's good to know. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's beautiful. Great ride. Although I kind of prefer the cataraki. That's I like, I like it when there's a little bit of trail and not just this. Yeah. The cataraki perfectly... is, is definitely unique. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's got some nice grassy sections and, and uh, it's beautiful in the forest there. Mm -hmm. yeah. So uh, you said at age 26, you did a, you did a bike tour. Where did you start and go from? Yeah. So I actually, um, to jump back a little bit sure. earlier, um, at the start of the pandemic, uh, that's when I kind of got bit by the touring bug. You know, I'd actually always had this dream of wanting to go bike touring or wanting to go do something, uh, living fairly yeah. cheaply, living in the wild, seeing beautiful places. Uh, I thought about living the van life. I thought about a lot of 
various different things or backpacking long-term, you know, maybe doing the Pacific crest or something or bike touring. Mm -hmm. And I never really, I never really had the funds to do it. Uh, well now I actually know that you can kind of do it on any amount of funds, uh, but I didn't have that knowledge before. You know, it seemed like you need all this money in the world to, to go about and do it. Totally. Um, yeah. So at the beginning of the pandemic, when everything shut down, I actually was working in the film industry and that, that got nixed immediately. Right. Uh, and I was really lucky because I was already set up to do some food delivery as a as a side gig when I was in between uh, contracts. Where'd you get the, the idea for that, actually? Because we, uh, for people that are listening, um, Nathan and I actually met up for coffee here in Chelsea uh, just before he flew out to Europe. Um, so it was quite an interesting interesting conversation. But uh, I think he got that idea from one of my previous guests and a friend of mine, Nima, right? Uh, I don't know if I actually got the idea, but when I was food couriering, I was listening to your podcast. Oh, okay. uh, that's when I, that, that was when I started listening to all these mm. adventure podcasts. Um, got it. I was listening to yours. I was listening to, I think, the Explore Magazine podcast, a bunch of ones that were motivating people to basically get outside and live their lives. Yeah. Um, and I ended up biking to do food delivery about um, almost immediately around six or 700 kilometers a week, uh, which is something I had never done in the past before. And so just having that realization that, oh, this kind of physical activity is actually really possible. It's, it's very easy. It's a blast. I mean, biking around downtown Van- Vancouver when the weather was beautiful and there was absolutely no cars on the streets. Like you can bike down West Georgia, which was a five or six lane road at 6 p.m. and and be carving s turns across all six lanes of traffic because <laughs> there's no cars there it was absolutely amazing yeah uh so yeah i realized it was possible and uh started scheming ideas for a grand adventure uh quickly i started looking at like oh i'll go on a one month vacation you know i was looking at japan or central asia or kyrgyzstan or maybe doing a little bit of canada or bc and uh quite literally in the span of just a couple days i had looked at so many different options and schemed it out that I pretty much had uh, the entire globe <laughs> with the little dots nice. uh, plotting a line of best fit across of it, across it. So, yeah. And, um, yeah. So you, you, is this where we jump into the 2000 or 2020, 21 bike tour? Sure. Yeah. Why not? Let's, let's <clears throat> talk about when I actually got started. So yeah. I did actually plan, uh, that was 2020, obviously when that happened and I knew that wasn't going to be possible to go that year. Um, for reasons we all are aware of. Uh, and I actually intended to leave on the Grand Adventure, the worldwide tour in 2021. And up until about a month before I had planned to go, I still thought it was somewhat possible. I hadn't actually done any preparation because I guess there was a part of me that knew uh, I, it was not going to happen. Yeah. And, and sure enough, you, you know, I know I could have gotten across the country, but uh, I wouldn't have been able to do a lot of warm showers or, or any sort of accommodation like that. A lot of places were closed. Uh, technically, it would have been illegal to cross provincial borders or health authority borders, but that's beside the point. Anyways, I didn't end up leaving on the Grand Adventure in 2021. So the first tour I did was um, a friend was actually in Kelowna, and uh, the par- her partner ended up driving out to meet her, and I thought I would tag along. Um, to go to go see them both and i figured i'd bring my bike and the the brand new touring bike which i'd purchased and ride back from Kelowna to vancouver an easy Uh, an easy four or five day ride yeah uh of course that was the time that the uh the heat dome came in over bc oh right then yeah uh so that first tour i believe i did 550 kilometers in four days 
uh, with 47, 48 degree temperatures. Uh, it was the same time that the town of, uh, of Lytton burned down. I remember reading that on the news, you know, it had 47, yeah. uh, 48, 49.6, and then it burned down the next day. And that was while I was on tour and I rode the, uh, I'm blanking on the name now, uh, the off-road trail that goes that goes through BC, that old rail trail, the one that the oh, it's called the huh? BC Epic rides on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I actually rode at the same time as the BC Epic. So uh, the the day that I came out of Kelowna, I rode up to Myra Canyon, and at that point, I actually ended up seeing a lot of the people that were doing the BC Epic. And even I think it was less than a day in for most of them, and everyone I talked to, or like eighty percent of the people I talked to, had already dropped. We're like, yeah, we're just yeah. doing this as a fun ride at this point. Yeah, I so heard was, a lot of people dropped on that. Yeah, for good reason too. I mean, you don't want to be pushing yourself on a on a race uh, that long and and that intense when it's that hot out. Mind you, the FKT was set in that weekend somehow, yeah. so you know, <laughs> to each their own. And that was Megan Megan Hackman. I think she did it on that one. That was that yes, 2021. Yes, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and this is the uh, KVR trail that I ended up riding on. Oh, okay. Yeah, um, Kettle Valley. Yeah. And it was right. actually mm-hmm. Kettle Valley Rail Trail. And it was really lucky because the sections that I rode on, some of them uh, between Princeton and the Coquihalla Highway, were completely destroyed by the flooding in BC last year. It's uh, and You can't ride on them. Like, there's big slopes that have fallen into yeah. the river and washed it out. It'll, it'll be five to ten years, if that, if they ever even rebuild. Yeah, I heard that there's might not ever be a reason to spend the money that, you know, there's a lot of cost to building a rail line and to oh, rebuild yeah. those trails, you have to rebuild it back up. And, um, it's a huge amount of money, especially in these days terms. Yeah, for sure. And for sure. There is a road that parallels it. It's uh, up high on the cliff, but they're going to maintain that road at least. So I think that's what they're using mm-hmm. for the, uh, for the BC. I do believe so. Now. Yeah. Yeah. So you, yeah. in 2021, you were able to ride the KVR and then like, all yes. the way to Vancouver, basically, or uh, well, to whatever destination. And then all the, all this the year, and then I, yeah, I hop on Highway 7 um, yeah. and follow that all the way to Vancouver. And then this year, yeah. big chunks of that were closed because there was just no more trail, right? There was no more trail, yeah. And then also in some sections, though, when I left uh, for the Cross Canada Tour, which is the start of the Grand Adventure, um, some parts were still covered in snow because we had quite a snowy spring. So, Wow. Yeah, it's hit or miss for the conditions up in there. Um, anyway, so that was that was the first tour. was was four days, uh, brand new touring bike. I'd had it for a couple months riding and, around the city. And what did you learn from that? About, like, what were some of your takeaways on that four day tour? Oh, that I loved it absolutely. Okay. Uh, definitely need more time to break in a Brooks saddle, especially because yeah. I did not have any bike shorts at the time. So yeah, I don't think I could sit down after that. Uh, yeah, I had to take a, about a week off, uh, but I still actually wanted to go touring, so I, I took a week off in Vancouver resting and then hopped back on the bike, uh, ferried over to Vancouver Island. I, I rode from Nanaimo up to Port Hardy, took the ferry from Port Hardy to Prince Rupert. Oh, it's wow. Okay. For our ferry travel. It's a beautiful, beautiful ride. Yeah. Um, and then from Prince Rupert, I rode up the Yellowhead Highway alongside the Skeena River mm-hmm. and ended at, uh, I made it to Prince George. The actual goal with that tour was this was planned Actually, a few months beforehand, I was trying to ride to the Bowron Lakes to do a canoe circuit, a oh, okay. seven or eight day canoe cir- circuit with friends. We had booked the previous year and the park was flooded and closed the first year. That was uh, 2020. Uh, and in 2021, by the time I got to Prince George, uh, there were two big fires in Bowron Lakes and half, uh. the, half the circuit was closed. So we got our reservation refunded. So yeah, we, we had our canceled by uh, water and fire so far. So 
I don't think I can book again because I don't want to be next time it'd be of an tornadoes or tornado something. There. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> isn't yeah. it? Yeah, isn't it to Prince George? Yeah. The Yellowhead is just phenomenal. From like, I didn't go as far as Prince Rupert. I was in. I think the furthest I went was oh man, I forget the name. I'd have to open the map. Um, did you come down from the Cassiar? I did. So I went to the town that's slightly yeah. west of there, um, about an hour or. 100k or so not an hour 100k uh was it uh smithers i know you would have passed i did definitely went through smithers the cassiar uh, i think terrace is the one that terrace uh, yes or maybe yeah 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 it was terrace um yeah so i spent a yeah. couple nights in terrace and uh just as a little break before hitting the cassiar and uh yeah, but even that but, whole the whole yellowhead section all the way to smithers and then on is just gorgeous it's, it's so nice it's so stunning there's these massive vertical rock walls all around you you're talking about you know thousand meter high rock cliffs it lo- almost looks like a yosemite and then because i was coming from the west there was a beautiful tailwind there's a huge shoulder mm-hmm. uh, and cars were giving me so much space it was a uh, beautiful tarmac yeah. yeah absolutely an amazing ride and then on but your one and then on your one side you there. got this beautiful skeena river which is just phenomenal you know it's just oh, abso- absolutely yeah. yeah yeah the one the one issue there is that it does have a, a dark history that highway it's the highway of tears which is that's right famous for uh missing and murdered indigenous women and so a, a lot of people wouldn't recommend riding it if you're a woman but do your own research right and uh mm-hmm. yeah. yeah yeah absolutely it's got a yeah. it's got a bit of a dark history for yeah, for sure. But uh, yeah, definitely a good ride if if you're uh, willing to to stomach that. I think I think it was is very safe. I had a great time on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, you know, one of the you were asking what I learned. One of the disasters that I made a mistake, and I will never make this mistake again. Touring was I had actually always used uh, Schrader valves on my on my commuter bike and on my working bike. Um, I just found them easier to deal with because I ended up always breaking the little uh, valve core off the press. Yeah, valve. yeah, they're pain in the ass. Uh, yeah, so I had I had Presta valves on the on the new bike, which is a Surly disc trucker, and we'll get into that. Uh, but I had brought uh, two spare Schrader valves, thinking that they were universal. Which on my previous bike it was, I could have used either ones because the the hole for the valve stem was accommodating to both sides. Oh yeah, the rim, the rim. Yeah, the rim on yeah. your your Surly is only drilled big enough for a, a Presta, right? Exactly, yeah, because it's oh, tubeless compatible yeah. as well, so they yeah. designed that. So I ended up getting a flat uh, somewhere in between uh, Terrace and Kitwanga where the where the Cassiar joins, and I went to go change the tire, and I realized, oh, man, I, I can't. <laughs> and I had, no, I had no patch kit because I had, oh, I had no. two tires, and, you know, this is this like my first experience. So, yeah, I actually ended up uh, hitchhiking. To Smithers? Or? It was a really funny uh, – to, to Hazleton. Oh, Hazleton, yeah. 50, 50 kilometers, yeah. Yeah. Um, it's actually really funny because I had spent a bit of time on the Skeena River the previous day watching these people kite surfing in the mouth of the river. And I was like, oh, this is beautiful. You know, these guys have this massive, beautiful backdrop behind them and they're absolutely rocking it. And the guy who picked me up on the side of the road was one of the people who I was watching. Oh, the nice. Day, and I, I had pictures of him uh, kite surfing from, from the day. So I, I stayed I, on his property and, and he oh, helped me great. out and I got back on the road. I remember um, a fantastic cafe in Hazleton. That's all I remember. I didn't stop in Hazleton that long, but there was a cafe like uh, right at the curve of the road. And I don't remember the name of it, but damn, was it good. It had really good desserts. Oh, yeah. I think Hazleton's actually actually three different towns now. There's... Yeah, there's like a few different. Uh, yeah, I think it was in New Hazleton or whatever it's called. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I'm gonna Google but, here. Yeah, that's that's a stunning country up there. Hazleton is, I think, one of the most beautiful, uh, beautiful little towns in BC for sure. It's got this iconic. Uh, I think it's called. Uh, 
Mount uh, Stegwiden. There's there's a mountain like that towers over Hazelton. That's oh just, yeah, I uh, see it. Uh, I don't know the just name. Just perf perfectly conical and yeah. I recommend anyone who's in the area to to take a trip. Yeah, Ste Northern Stegwiden or Stegwiden. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a uh, historical landmark there. I guess that's the mountain. Um, yeah, and actually, one other thing that was really cool near New ha uh, New Hazelton was um, the First Nations village with um, the, the Gitchin village with all the totem poles and the paintings and the. Uh, it was really cool. Yeah, I went in, the, in there. And in the Kassan village, you know, I didn't actually make it yeah, out there, yeah. which I, I kind of regret. I th it would have only added about a 10 kilometer round trip to my yeah. tour, but I think I wanted to to get on. I did go to the bridge over the river. Mm -hmm. uh, there's this. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. Steel arch bridge. Yeah. Over this <clears throat> deep, deep, narrow canyon. Uh, and I rode back and forth across that bridge and then carried on. That's funny. If you went all the way to that bridge, you know, you were almost at the village. <laughs> I was almost at it. And, you know, I don't think I had actually known that that was there. Because yeah. if I had, I would have definitely took the time. But yeah. uh, it is what it is. You can't see everything. I've, I've realized that. No, now. exactly. Yeah. Now you have a reason yeah. to go back. For a, sure, yeah. And years. if I ever go down that route, uh, down the Americas, I'll come down to Cassiar and I'll end up there as well. Yeah, yeah. All the Cassiar is amazing. Um, <clears throat> yeah, so tell us a bit more about your bike. You did mention it's a surly New World Tourist. Or not New World Tourist, sorry, Disc Trucker. New <laughs> World Tourist trucker, is the, yeah. uh, the bike I rider. The, uh, <laughs> I bought the new, the new Disc Trucker. I think it's the 2021 model or the, whichever one the newest one mm -hmm. is. Um, pretty standard uh, long-distance touring bike. Steel frame. I ride a 56-centimeter uh, or 56-frame uh, size. Mm -hmm. uh, it has accommodations for wheel sizes, 50 millimeters in the front and 47 in the back. I ride seven. I ride the 700C version, although I think I can fit uh, 26. Yeah, in there you can definitely because well, the 56. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the 56 goes both ways. It does 700 or, or 26, but I, I ride 700. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I guess the good thing is all, about wheel sizes. I think if you go smaller, you can put a bigger tire if you ever wanted to go that route, right? For, like for sure. Yeah, yeah. That, that is a, a possibility. Although I think if I actually end up getting into more serious bike packing it'll be a it'll be a custom frame build or something with uh at least accommodation for two and a half or 2.6 inch tires yeah yeah so definitely get off-road yeah uh, but i'm happy with it for what i'm doing right now which is a mix of gravel some rough terrain and then uh tarmac and you know chipsy or whatever yeah. the one good thing is um you know a, a disc trucker is it's made of steel so it's going to be a strong bike it's not going to fall apart and Oh yeah, can be repaired anywhere, and and for those times where you do get off onto a little bit gnarlier riding or gravel that could be pretty lumpy, it's it's a comfortable bike, right? Like the oh, geometry yeah. I, I of it is very like comfortable. Yeah. So, yeah, I've been on some trails that you know are kind of mountain bike trails, and and that bike will take far more abuse than all the things you put on it. So it's definitely not the limiting factor to what I'm doing. Usually. Yeah, I'd say probably more the limiting factor is gear the way it's set up on the bike you know like yeah the types of bags you might carry and whatnot that's probably more limiting than the bike itself for sure yeah actually just coming into into town today i had the last hour was a ride in the dark uh, and on these like sandy super potholed gravel roads and uh one of my back panniers just straight up flew off when i went over a big pothole uh in the dark so that was that was fun to deal with there was dogs barking at me but well, usually that doesn't happen <laughs> yeah yeah i was gonna say well at least it's you knew it fell off and uh you weren't like 10 yeah, kilometers you can, later you can notice pretty quick yeah by the weight imbalance because you know exactly how your bike mm -hmm, is feeling mm -hmm. yeah 
So, um, you know, it, it'll rattle your bones. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Anything else about your bike? Did you change anything up? Is it a drop bar or flat bar? Yeah, I got the stock bars on the disc trucker. Those are the uh, truck stop bars. Um, so they have a bit of rise from where they come from the stem. I from uh, the, yeah. the stem exactly. I don't actually know what the point of the rise is if it affects the steering geometry, but but it is there. Uh, and then it's got comfortable hoods. Uh, and then the big thing is the is the flare with the drops. I think it's like fifteen or twenty degrees of flare. Okay. Um, which for me, it's actually adds a bit of control. It sounds counterintuitive but sometimes it's actually better to be on the drops going down a technical trail because mm-hmm. you have a bit wider of, of a stance and a bit lower of a stance so uh yeah so I yeah it maybe it lowers your things. center of gravity a little bit as well as it gives you yeah a wider a wider base platform or whatever to, to control yeah. the tire from so yeah yeah so i've, I've got <clears> the uh the truck stop bars uh that's that's stock the frame is all stock on the front i've got the surly rack uh, the, the big one with the extra space on top, that's basically future-proofing the bike for if I ever need to go into a desert long-term, I can yeah. carry an extra, you know, 20 liters of water. I think I have a tubus rack on the back, a steel a steel one, so that, again, if it ever breaks, that I can get it welded anywhere. Uh, I've got a Son 28 Dynamo hub in the front, which I really, really love. That's an amazing, amazing invention, amazing piece of gear. That's connected to a... Edelux 2 front light, which is also incredible. I recommend that as well. Mm. And then my rear light is a, I believe it's a Topeak Line Light Plus. Uh, that one works. I, I, yeah, it's great. I, I wouldn't uh, say that's better than any others. Okay. Before continuing on with the show, I'd like to thank Panorama Cycles for sponsoring this podcast. Panorama Cycles is a bicycle manufacturer in Quebec, Canada, dedicated to backcountry cyclists that prefer gravel, snow, and off-road trails. They believe cycling is a catalyst for adventures of all sizes, and that there's no need to travel across the world or to be a seasoned athlete to live epic outdoor adventures. Over the past year, I've been riding the Chickshocks Fat Bike, the Catadan Gravel Bike, and the Taiga Mountain Bike. From everyday rides, bikepacking trips, and a multitude of races and events, these bikes have put a huge smile on my face every step of the way while also getting me on the podium on the Wendigo Ultra Fat Bike Race and helped me set an FKT on the Canadian Shield 400. In partnering up with the Bike Pack Adventures podcast, Panorama Cycles also wants to give back to the cycling community, particularly you, the listeners of the podcast. By using the promo code BPA10 when purchasing a new bike from PanoramaCycles.com, you'll save 10%. For more information on their environmental commitments or to check out their bikes, head to PanoramaCycles.com. Now back to the show. And do you run a yes. um, do you run a when normally during the day are you just running a charging a power bank or what's the uh, what's your setup there? I do have a I think it's a sine wave reactor which comes out as a split from the dynamo, uh, so it can either go to the lights or to the reactor or sorry it can go to the lights or to the reactor, um, but it can't do just the rear lights. If it goes to the lights, it does front and back. Okay. Or it can go to the reactor as well. And if you put the reactor on like USB charging with the lights on as well, it won't be as effective, you know, for for both cases, you won't get as much light. You won't really get lots of USB power. And I actually have made it most of the time, not actually needing to use that. Uh, I have two power banks with me, two 25,000 milliamp hour power banks. And that will last me Usually on average about five days of wild camping. That's charging okay. uh, my watch for GPS. It's charging yeah. my cell phone for route finding, for in pictures. It's charging even the camera sometimes. Uh, 
and then it's easy. I actually end up going into cafes or fast food or if I'm staying with someone or warm showers, I just charge everything back up. So yeah, you just plug in a high speed wall charger and go with it. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes, you know, if you're on a, on a paved road and and you got a tailwind, you know, I just plug the USB in just for the sake of it, but I don't find it provides nearly as much power as just using the power banks. I find them to be more straightforward. Yeah. Fair enough. Um, What kind of, What's your what's your packing system like? Because I know I know it's a it's, you got a lot more different things than most bike tours might have. I think with some of your gear, but um, maybe you can take us through that. Like, how do you pack everything? What do you carry with you? It's a fairly straightforward system. Okay. Uh, I'm, it looks like a classic touring bike. I've got I've got a frame bag, an, an upper frame bag, not the one that fits the whole triangle, partial just frame, the yeah. upper section. Yeah, yeah that uh, that holds all the tools, uh, first aid kit, extra tubes pump, uh, spokes, spoke wrench, Allen key, multi-tool, pocket knife. There's probably more in there. Everything I need, essentially. Uh, a little cassette cassette key. I think I can do everything, except I don't have a wrench for the cassette key. So if my wheels are on super tight, I just got to ride to wherever I can find the mm-hmm. next wrench, which is usually pretty easy to do. Uh, and then I've got the two Ortlieb panniers in the front, the smaller ones. They're 12 and a half liters a piece. So that brings the front carrying to 25 liters to 20 liters in the back. So that's 40 liters in the back. And then there's the little, uh, the six liter, I think it's called the ultimate six that goes off the front yeah. of the handlebars. Handlebar bag. Fits, or, uh, yeah. yeah, that fit my wallet and the GoPro, sometimes power bank, the lock, a uh, bunch of receipts and snacks. Uh, in Canada, I had my bear spray in there and it was always basically, <laughs> I could shoot it out of the bag if I really needed oh, nice. to. <laughs> Uh, luckily I didn't ever have to do that, but uh, it was actually very handy to be able to get that right away. Uh, and it's got the, the ultimate yeah. six. Now the, the newer ones, they're, they're magnetic closure, right? So it's not snaps anymore. They are, they are magnetic. Yeah. So, yeah. uh, it's actually funny. I was really worried about it the week that I bought it. Um, I had done this like gravel riding and it kept, I was bouncing open and my stuff was flying out. Uh, but I think after that first ride, maybe the magnets just settled in or something and oh, I don't weird. actually have that problem anymore. So yeah. I find the magnetic closure, um, works really well. And because it's a clip in system to the, the piece that attaches to the handlebars, it's really easy to take on and off cause it's got valuables in it. So if I go into, yeah. if I leave the bike, I always bring that with me. Yeah. And it's lockable too. So you can lock it to your bike. So nobody can do like a drive by, yeah. but I mean, I never, ever locked mine. Yeah, I've never but, locked it. Yeah. I don't, I don't see the point. Cause I just take it with me if I go yeah. somewhere. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. I just sold mine this past year cause I just haven't used it in so many years and it was just sitting there in a bucket in a bin. And so I sold off some of my, my Ortlieb, my bigger Ortlieb panties. I've kept the small ones just, uh, depending on what kind of touring I'm doing, that would be excessive packing for me these days would be for taking sure, yeah. a, You're going pretty light 25 liters. I'd be like, Whoa, days, I got so much so. space. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's kind of, uh, it's kind of the problem that a lot of people will have is that you're not the stuff that you have isn't going to dictate the amount of space you need. I find it's actually the space that you have is going to dictate the stuff that you bring. Yeah. So if you have, you know, 70 liters of space, all of a sudden you have 70 liters worth of stuff. Mm-hmm. So, and, and yeah. you, uh, you know, you studied video, I don't know, directing videography. I'm not hundred percent sure exactly what you studied. It was, it was general, general film production, yeah. film production. And yeah. I believe when we were having coffee, you mentioned that you're, you're carrying a fair bit of, stuff too right so you can take make some better videos and 
Qu quite a bit right now, yeah. So I have I have a laptop with me. Uh, I've got a MacBook. I have a drone, which I'm running the DJI Air 2S right now with four batteries for that. I have a Sony A7S III as my camera. I actually also carry a fanny pack, a six liter fanny pack. That's okay. where the camera lives. Okay, um, I was gonna ask you, like how the... do you carry that stuff so it doesn't get bashed around? Yeah. Yeah, so that was actually also what I learned last year was I, I broke, uh, I had the camera and a telephoto lens in the Ortlieb 6. And just cause that was bouncing around a little bit, um, cameras really do not like vibration. So I, I knocked out, I think, the focusing system on the telephoto lens. Oh, no. I, I damaged some of the electronics in the camera, and they both had to get uh, sent in for to be repaired. Mm -hmm. So I have had zero issues so far using the fanny pack. The The camera lives in there with, uh, with an extra lens, with all the batteries, with a little air blower to blow dust out of the sensor. Mm -hmm. uh, my phone actually fits in one of the side pockets. The one that I have is a Osprey Talon 6, I believe. It's just behind me. So yeah, and you it. can never go wrong with Osprey because if anything yeah. ever happens, you just get it exchanged for a new one or they fix it. And so, Yeah, I think it's the same with Ortlieb as well. Uh, the one drawback that this has is that it is not waterproof. Mm. Uh, so when it does rain, um, I've learned now to I kind of just put a plastic bag on the inside. But uh, I've had some issues with uh, humidity and condensation getting oh, into the cameras, okay. but it just takes time to kind of get over that and, and to deal with that. And yeah, and then the I still have a telephoto lens, and that goes in a pannier wrapped up wrapped up in a hoodie, and that's that's been protected so far. Okay. So and what about your laptop? Like how like I have a Mac um, and MacBook Air, but I know and I've known several people that have bike toured and kind of bike packed, taken some rougher trails and roads with their laptop, and then had huge issues with uh, just parts breaking and you know things falling yeah, apart. Yeah. So. The, the laptop's done done well so far. Uh, we can we can get because uh, when we chatted before, I told you everything started breaking in the last like three days of my trip across Canada. Yeah, uh, and one of those things was the laptop screen. The laptop is fine so far. Uh, it's still actually turned on, but because it has this liquid crystal display, somehow I got this tiny little crack on the edge of the screen. I think it was because I probably left a grain of sand in the keyboard before I closed the screen, and it was. Yeah, it just it just broke the screen and I had to get the mm. screen replaced. But other than that, it's done really, really well. I have no issues with uh, data storage because it's uh, SSD based. Yeah. Uh, uh, except now I have a, actually one issue I'm having is there's a screen cover on it. And these Macs are so sensitive that if the pannier bounces around hard enough or if I lean the bike against the ground, sometimes I can hear the the screen press the power button and I can hear the laptop turn on in my pannier. Even oh, that's funny. The bike against the ground. Uh, luckily it usually just powers itself off and I've had no issues, but it's just kind of annoying. Yeah. Yeah. But it's in a case, uh, I thought about padding it extra, you know, wrapping the case in an extra hoodie or a jacket or something, but I haven't had a need to do it. I still try to keep mm -hmm. some clothes under it so that when the bag comes off the bike and goes on the ground, it's not just being dropped right onto the edge of the screen. Yeah. Um, but overall, I've had a good experience. Yeah, it's done It's done well. So oh, that's far. good. Yeah, I, I, I uh, with my MacBook Air, I used to have like this clamshell plastic protector that you'd put on top and bottom of the, the, the laptop. And, but what I found is that Macs, their hinge systems aren't super strong in terms of like, I just find that the weight of that, that clamshell on the outside of it would just cause it to like start going open or closed, whatever way it was leaning, you know? Oh man! And yeah. so obviously that went to the trash, but um, yeah, that's one other thing I find is like Macs are great, but 
their hinges are not as robust or they don't have as much resistance or maybe mine's just really old now. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you do have to be careful. They are they are expensive tools, right? And yeah. and uh, I'm I'm usually one for treating my my equipment as tools instead of treasures. But there there are some things that you know you have to be very very careful with. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So so definitely the laptop is one yeah. of those things. Yeah, and, and when editing off of an SSD as well. Yeah, and a lot of people like if you're touring and stuff, and then you know you've got. The, the most valuable in some ways, the most valuable thing is the video film footage you have and stuff. Cause to get it again, in some ways to do what you want to do would be, well, near impossible, not say impossible, but you'd have yeah. to rewrite it everything. Would, it would just be absolutely heartbreaking to lose to yeah. all your video footage. Right. So, so I think like yeah. nowadays too, stuff. with, with such amount, high amounts of like um, cloud storage being so accessible, I think probably most people should be considering um, keeping everything stored on the cloud, back it up on the cloud, right? When you have a chance. For most people, typically that would be a pretty good solution. Uh, depends on how much you're filming and mm. what style you're filming. For me, I was averaging, I think, close to 50 gigabytes a day. Oh, um, shit. Okay, never mind. Yeah, so I think in, <laughs> in Canada, I, I produced close to six or seven terabytes worth of footage. And just to be able to upload that, you, you know, that that's like a professional uh, kind of data plan for internet. Yeah. I'm not going to go to some warm showers host and say, hey, can I spend four days uploading, you know, 200 or 500 gigs of footage? Right. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I did know some people who, who did that, and they spent uh, quite a lot of time just doing that uh, mm. uploading. So... Yeah, I risked it and and kept the footage, but I always made sure my bike was was safe. Uh, in Canada, I felt very very comfortable mm-hmm. with, with the bike. I had no problems. And before leaving, did you like? Because I know you're you were here in Ottawa with your folks. Did you like leave the the hard drives that were full behind uh, as a safe place? Everything's or? backed up in Ottawa. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Okay. Yeah. I did have to bring some copies with me because I've only edited one one video out of the ten I right. intended to produce for Canada uh, because when you start bike touring, you end up just, you know, wanting to bike tour or you spend so much time eating, resting, and just general upkeep of your life that to actually get into the nitty gritty of editing, it, uh, it seemed to fall to the wayside. And, to say the least. and yeah. yeah. And, and I think too, as somebody who studied film, you're probably, a, you know, it could be said that you're probably a perfectionist when it comes to that. So oh, no, you, way, way too much right? perfectionist. I'm trying to fix that. Yeah. Where, where like a Joe blow like me might be going and say, Oh, that's good enough. You know, it's got some music, it's got some stuff and it's just an okay video in the end. And people are, you know, it's, that's what makes a, the good, the really good videos different from the okay. Yeah, videos. Absolutely. So, so for the first video I have, which is a BC, uh, and now I have the Alberta one, uh, which I'm actually going to do voiceover for today. That's the intention. Um, I think I've put just editing wise between 100 and 150, maybe even as high as 200 hours. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's like, that's like a month's full-time job. (laughs) It it is. Yeah. It's a, it's a little nuts. Cause yeah, I go for music. I go, I do color correction because everything's shot in uh, S log. It's a picture profile. So you have a lot more latitude in post. I do sound. Uh, I don't want any kind of like jarring sound cuts between clips. So there's going to be either sound ramps or carryovers or sound effects. Uh, there's music, there's voiceover. Oh man. Yeah. Do you, do you think, uh, are, are you trying to figure out how can I streamline this and make it uh, just easier on myself ultimately, or is this something you're just going to uh, yeah, stick with? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think the, the, the most important thing is to just be consistent uh, with, with your editing. Now I'm figuring out that if I at least do, you know, a little bit of work, 
uh, every couple of days, I can keep myself sharp. And that way mm -hmm. I'm not spending time just relearning the systems uh, and getting used to them again, you know, keyboard mm -hmm. shortcuts and, and workflow and everything, making sure all your media is managed uh, and downloaded and sorted before you actually get into editing yeah. as well. Uh, but yeah, just keeping it consistent and, and doing a little bit. And, and in my envision catching up. Yeah. I was going to say in my experience, even with, time. even with podcasting, it's, you know, if you let it get to be too much, it's just kind of depressing when you look at it. Cause the, the grand scheme is like, Oh my God, there's so much to do, but there just by lot, doing yeah, little by little. Yeah. Yeah. When you're riding every single day and trying to make a, an insane amount of distance, you know, you're producing stuff faster than you can edit. If I had to edit a, a video every day of what, or just even the part of the day that I shot, I'd be spending three, four or five hours worth of time every single evening. And that's when you're wild camping, that's impossible. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about um, your world tour or do you have a official name for this tour? I forget. I think you. Uh, you can call it a grand adventure. I grand, think that's a good the way grand to adventure for the grand adventure. Like how did you come up with the yeah. idea? And what is the, uh, the route that you came to mind? Yeah. So I kind of always knew I wanted to start with Canada because um, I'd had that idea of crossing Canada by bike uh, a long time ago. Um, and as a Canadian myself, it's the easiest. You know, I don't need to worry about visas. I don't need to worry about foreign currency, uh, insurance, uh, other countries' laws. Uh, it's a safe country. People are very friendly, and there's a huge amount of natural beauty. So, you know, it's kind of a win-win for everything. It's a great country to cross. Yeah. Um, so that was the plan. Uh, to leave at the beginning of May was my original idea, and then tried to get to the end of Newfoundland by the end of October. So that would have put it at, I believe that's six months. Um, and I looked into riding on the, the Trans-Canada Trail. Uh, when I actually started doing the research, it was known as the Great Trail because it's been rebranded and rebranded and rebranded again. It's now the TCT again. Uh, and that's good. We have, this, our country uh, has so much money to spend on putting new signs up every few years. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's really funny because now I'm in Portugal on the Eurovelo and I've only seen one Eurovelo sign. I think you got to follow these hash marks that are, that are somewhere, but I've seen one and it was on this bike lane that ran for like 30 kilometers straight and had no, absolutely no need to be there because it was the only place they couldn't get lost. Yeah. Other than that, I've even gotten lost looking at a map and because the intersections are so confusing right now in Europe, I've gone the wrong direction looking at where I am on the map. Uh, anyways. <laughs> Um, yeah, so just to get this out of the way there, the Trans-Canada Trail is not a bike trail straight across the country. It is a mixed-use recreation trail and, or network of recreation trails that contains hiking trails, it contains biking trails, it contains random links up, link-ups of gravel roads, it contains a lot of ATV tracks, and it actually contains a lot of water routes, uh, yeah. canoeing routes, all of Western Ontario. All the way north, there. too, like to Great Slave Lake or something the, insane. Yeah. River, I believe. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and it has been traveled completely uh, its entire distance um, by a few, few folks. Uh, Diane Whalen spent, I think, five years traveling the whole thing oh, wow. uh, across all 25,000 kilometers of its, uh, of its distance. However, it is, a good, it is a good starting point to look at for a potential route across Canada. Um, but you have to look at each trail section individually uh, to learn whether it's going to be a bike trail or a hiking trail or et cetera, et cetera. Right. Um, and how do you find it all out? You, like, how do you, how'd you figure out this is going to be good to ride on and this is going to be utter shit? 
I went, I went through every single trail section on their website um, and actually went and looked at what was hiking trail. And I started planning. I, I mapped out everything on Kamut, uh, which is what I'm using for, I don't actually use it for route finding on the day, but I use it for uh, time estimates and distance, distance okay. estimates of where I think I'm going to be. Um, so I would basically drop the Kamut map to parallel onto the Trans-Canada Trail because it does show the Trans-Canada Trail as a bright red line. So it's really easy mm-hmm. to see where it goes. Um, and then I always, found, I basically change my route like every single day on the fly all the time. That's kind of how I'm traveling right now. So even when you have this plan, it's, it's always changing. And, and uh, well, that's just happening because you can't follow maps. You already told us this. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, sometimes what you find in reality is so much different than, yeah. than what's on the map. Like uh, sometimes, especially with the TCT, I mean, in Saskatchewan, there's a 516 kilometer section called the Northern Trails of Saskatchewan, which is just 516 kilometers of like zigzagging farm roads and gravel roads. It's not a single road. It's like 700 of them that go in random directions. Okay. Uh, yeah. Even, even there was another one in, in Saskatchewan called the elbow trail. Uh, and it was like 36 kilometers long. And it's like, Oh, this beautiful trail can be biked in reality. I think 28 kilometers of that was just gravel roads, which at the time I did it were, full of mud and a terrible decision. And then the actual elbow trail in the town of elbow was only two and a half kilometers. They just, uh, because they didn't want to add all these extra trails, they kind of just extended it uh, yeah. and called the rest of it the same trail. What? Um, so like to take us through your ride. So leaving Vancouver um, this year, uh, how, how was it? Was there any forest fires? Did you do Vancouver Island as well? Or was it uh uh, yeah, so I, I did start from the point, uh, point zero of the Trans-Canada Trail. And I did finish at, at point zero on the other side of the country. So that's in Victoria at a place okay. called Clover Point Park. It's actually only about a kilometer away from the end of the Trans-Canada Highway where the mm. Terry Fox statue is. And you will ride past that statue. So anyone who's going from the uh, mile zero of the Trans-Canada Highway, um, you know, I would have passed that one kilometer into my ride and then okay. riding through Victoria. Uh, so yeah, it was two days I did on Vancouver Island. Uh, I followed the TCT most of the way. Uh, it brings you all the way out through the Cowichan Valley Trail, all the way out to Lake Cowichan, uh, and then back down. At some point, I had to hop on the highway because there was, I think it was just like a hiking trail, or maybe I had to race to catch the ferry or something. Okay. Uh, and then through Vancouver, I followed I followed the trail proper as well. I went through West Van kind of... I followed around Stanley Park. This was this was because I was living in Vancouver. I kind of just wanted to get one last ride through the city, so I was taking the scenic right. route, even though you know I could I could have just gone direct and save a bunch of time. Uh, but I, I rode as much as possible on the bike paths because we have a really really fantastic uh, cycle cycling network in Vancouver. Mm-hmm. You can make it quite far out of the city while staying on those trails. Uh, once you get out of Vancouver, you're on um, on a big dike system for the Fraser River because that is subject to flooding. So. These dikes actually have some really good gravel trails built on top of them. And that'll bring you most of the way out to, to Abbotsford or to Chilliwack. And then I think you hop on, on Highway 7, which is the highway that runs north of the Fraser River. And that would be the traditional touring route for okay. people going to Hope. Uh, and then because of the floods uh, that washed out the... Well, they did an insane amount of damage to BC last year. They destroyed the KVR, which already was kind of a disaster uh, along the Coquihalla Highway. It was kind of a suggestion. It was like single lane sand in some points, and that was before it got damaged. Um, and the Coquihalla Highway got just 
completely washed out in some parts and was still under construction. And mm-hmm. on the best of days, it's a super highway with 120 kilometer an hour speed limit and an insane amount of truck volume traffic. So I opted to take the, the southern route, which would, I think, also be the traditional touring route over Highway 3, which brings you into Princeton. And I think that is actually the best way to go. I've heard that that's a really beautiful route, too. It's really, really beautiful. Um, A lot of people would actually stop somewhere in the middle in Manning Park. I think there's a resort you can stay at uh, that has like hot tubs and stuff. That's what I saw a lot of people doing. Uh, I went all the way from Hope to Princeton in one day. That was 145 kilometers or so. I wanted to just get it done, get get over the pass and then get to the other side um, and get some food. And then from Princeton, I hopped on the KVR. It's it's pretty rough between Princeton and Summerland. Oh yeah, I see them. Uh, I, one, I'm looking. I'm watching. I'm looking at the map as you kind of talk. So yeah, for sure. Yeah, I mean, I'm, thinking, I'm going through the map as well. Chris yeah. is just looking at his yeah. phone and ignoring me. <laughs> it's okay. I'm tabbed out. So yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. So the KVR that runs from Princeton to Summerland that's pretty rough. It can be sandy in sections and definitely slow going. I think I was only doing about sixty clicks a day at that point. Okay. Uh, you can parallel it on the road that runs across it. That's actually what I ended up doing last year when I went through it. I got on and off the rough KVR and mm-hmm. onto the really nice Princeton Summerland road. And then from Pict- Penticton, uh, this is actually one of the, I think the highlights of the KVR and you'll see it in all these tourism brochures is when you go up through Naramata, there are these vineyards just all along the side of the, uh, of the hill there. And you're, you'll be riding on this beautiful stone desk trail with wineries all, all alongside you. If you really feel like it, I th- there's oh, nice. little offshoots you can go to go do wine tasting and whatnot. Uh, and, and that's like so off, uh, so let me get this right so from uh from print was it princeton you said no sorry from summerland you go up towards in, into Kelowna, or is it you cross no through? sorry from summerland you go south into penticton oh, okay got it yeah uh, yeah just just along the highway there 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 is it's labeled as the kvr on the side but i think they run like a steam train there so i don't uh, okay. know if that's possible to ride on mm-hmm. yeah and that's a quick ride on the on the highway it's it's pretty decent i had no no problems there and then and then it resumes on naramata and it's pretty good it, it switch backs up the mountain up to about a thousand yeah, meters i see it uh, i think the lake's at around 300 and it'll bring you past shoot lake yeah uh, when i rode this last year actually that was a horrible ride uh as part of the bc epic was doing they ha- they had just started fixing it but it was at the stage where they had put this gravel in that was maybe you know four inches wide it was like essentially railroad ballast so it was kind of the most awful thing to ride on these really sharp giant rocks and uh somehow they've all broken them up now and it's it's a much nicer ride now maybe they buried them yeah. with a spiner stone and stuff just like you maybe, know maybe yeah or, or added some, some dirt or sand in the mm-hmm. middle but i thought it was a pretty a pretty good ride at this 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 year uh it'll bring you through the myra canyon trestles that's a pretty big highlight for a lot of people you yeah know, i've heard good things like a dozen or so uh trestles and it's like trestle tunnel trestle tunnel where they've gone around this uh the steep canyon for the old train that used to haul uh, logging products out of there. Uh, and then it becomes pretty remote. You kind of have this really long descent from the top of Myra there all the way down towards uh, Beaverdale and Rock Creek. Oh yeah. Uh, I mean, you do parallel the highway, but uh, it's pretty much in the wilderness. You're going to be out of food service for more than a day. Uh, and then you would get onto, I think, the Columbia Western Rail Trail. That'll keep bringing you east through Christina Lake, up over the Paulson Summit down towards Castlegar. All that was was a pretty decent ride. Some sections are closer to single track. I mean, I'm riding it with a touring bike, but mm-hmm. I wouldn't recommend this for most people riding with a tour bike. Touring bike. I'm just kind of a bold and insane person who, who rides on whatever's in front of me. Right. Uh, 
Yeah, I don't know if I want to go through every single detail. I can't. No, yeah, fair enough. All, all night. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I ended up hopping on uh, on the highway Castlegar to Nelson to Kootenay Lake. There are some some really nice rail trails you can ride through the Kootenays uh, alternatively, uh, but I just kind of wanted to get through there. Yeah. Sometimes cut up some distance, uh, and I think you might have actually seen the picture of me because I wanted to go over Gray Creek Pass, which is part of the uh, Trans Canada Trail, and this was. I think I did it on like June 6th or June 7th and it usually becomes snow free sometime in mid to late June yeah. sometimes early July and I knew there was still snow up there everyone's like yeah we were snowmobiling up there last week you know you're not going to get over it and I was like that's fine I can you know it's going to take me two days to ride around it or two and a half days to ride around it to Kimberley or to Cranbrook so mm-hmm. it takes me two and a half days to push my bike over the pass you know at, at least I had an adventure and so I rode up about a thousand meters and I got to snow line at uh just around 1550 or 1600 meters. And the top of the pass is at 2100 or just, just shy of 2100 meters. And after I hit snow, I think I only made it another 50 meters vertical. And that might've taken me an hour and a half or two hours. Like it, oh, it very wow. quickly got to the point that I was post holing in the snow. Cause it was, it was super isothermal, mm-hmm. which means that uh, it's basically being heated from the inside. Like it's, it's super wet and you just go straight through. Uh, yeah, I was post holding up to my knees. Uh, the bike, the wheels were filled with snow. The, the bike was going up to the panniers. And every time I couldn't even push it, I had to lift the bike up, put it into, into the next piece of snow. And I, had to, I was like, I'm just turning around, you know, oh, I'm going to get frostbite or something. Yeah. It's ridiculous. Uh, and half the reason I actually wanted to do that because it was because I knew there was a lot of snow and the BC Epic was going up there about three weeks after that I that I went. And I figured, you know, and this would have been, you would have been just before the tour divide as well, right? That going through that, like, yeah, we'll get into that. Yeah. Okay. That, yeah. That would have been about a week, a week and a half before the tour divide. Um, but yeah, I figured, you know, if I failed at Great Creek, at least I could make a post about, about the conditions of it to the people who are racing the BC Epic. Yeah. Uh, and sure enough, they actually offered an alternate option this year to get around it. I think most people did end up going over Great Creek Pass. There was about, um, what an hour and a half of bike pushing for most people on average, which wasn't, which isn't too bad. Um, there was still a lot of snow. It, it was, it was an insane snow year up, yeah. up there and very, very late. Like we got a lot of snow in May and June. So that's kind of what ended up going there, but it was good to get the knowledge out there um, of the conditions of the past. Cause no one had checked it out previously. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyways. Yeah. So to, to jump a little bit ahead uh, by the time I made it into Fernie, uh, if you've heard about what happened with the tour divide this year, this is to the listeners. I know oh, yeah. you know what's going with, yeah. what what went on. Um, there was about somewhere between thirty and fifty centimeters of snow that fell up in the high mountains, uh, both north of Fernie and then down across the U.S. border. Uh, I think it's Montana that's down there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I got into Fernie about the same time as maybe the top third of the pack of the tour divide racers and they were going the other direction uh, and so i ended up actually staying in fernie i think it was four nights uh it was really lucky i ended up meeting someone on the side of the road who you know just made friends with and he invited uh myself and another guy i i met along the way yeah to to stay in their place uh and they convinced us to stay for a, a little while longer because the snow was getting uh, was getting crazy and then in the time that we were waiting, the Fernie Search and Rescue had to conduct, I think it was it was up to 15 by the time yeah, I left, I think 15, I heard 15 rescues for people that were injured in the mountains. Um, there was all sorts of things that happened. Uh, most of them were hypothermia and frostbite. Uh, one guy 
he went OT, he, he hit a big rock and his bear spray was on his handlebars and the bear spray blew up in his face and he hit a rock, uh, when OTB with, you know, not being able to see and actually because he hit the rock, he had swerved. And if he hadn't gone over the bars, he would have actually swerved straight down over a cliff, like into a river and probably, uh, not made it out yeah but because he actually crashed it i kind of saved his life he broke a bunch of ribs yeah i heard he broke a ton of ribs yeah yeah Yeah. so that was the kind of stuff that was going on up there and and you can search up the article on bikepacking.com it's called chaos on the 2022 tour divide and that is uh that is quite literally what was happening um so my friend who he actually left about a day or two before me and and decided he was going to try to test, test the pass, uh, the elk pass that goes to, uh, Kananaskis lakes. That's where the trans Canada trail goes. So he rode up there and made it pretty close to the pass, but very quickly he found that there was 30 centimeters of snow on the ground. And this was close to 1600 meters and the pass was over 2000 as well. Yeah. And so he actually turned around, he had two and a two and a 2.6 inch tires and he turned around and messaged Mm. me on Facebook. So I hadn't left Fernie and I was able to, make the call to divert into Alberta at that point, sort of continuing North. And you did tell me an interesting fact that, um, I mean, most people assume Great Creek Pass is the highest pass in the the Rockies, right? And you told me that there's a pass over there. I forget what it's called. Yeah. But... So I, I as well thought that Great Creek Pass was the highest road in Canada until this year. Uh, that was actually, I still thought that until I made this little diversion so instead of going north from Sparwood through Elkford and then going over the Elk Pass, mm-hmm. which is a mountain biking route, to be clear, I would people shouldn't tour over there uh, unless they're willing to go bikepacking. Instead, you go over the Crow's Nest Pass into Alberta. The Crow's Nest Pass is only at 1,300. I think that's the lowest way to get over the Rockies. Um, I might be wrong about that, though. And then from Coleman, Alberta, which is just, just after the Crow's Nest Pass, I went north on this route called uh, Route 40, I think on Google Maps, it might just be called uh, Forest Forest Trunk Road. And that was about 100 kilometers of, of remote gravel road. That was one of my most amazing rides. And then once it connects to this Kananaskis Trail, which is the paved road that runs up to Kananaskis Lakes and onwards towards, mm-hmm. uh, towards Canmore and Kananaskis, yeah. it goes over Highwood Pass, which is just over 2,200 meters, like 2,206 or something. Uh, yeah. And luckily that was actually uh, plowed. The, the pass had opened the day before I rode it. Uh, so I was really lucky. There was almost no traffic. No one was riding it at this time of year. Uh, I think you can actually cycle it in an early part of June before the pass opens, but while it's already plowed and it's still closed to traffic. I did read that. I can't guarantee that, but it sounded like it would be a good ride if you got there just before June 15th, when it opens at midnight, uh, you'd be able to have this road devoid of traffic. But anyways, I was there on June 16th. And I think on in five hours on that paved road over Highwood Pass, like I saw a dozen cars or so and five grizzly bears. Oh, wow. And so yeah. Highwood Pass is uh, it's paved, right? Yes. Yeah, so once you join up uh, from Route 40 to the Kananaskis Trail, mm-hmm. uh, which would be at Highwood Junction, then it becomes paved. And it's really, really nice. Okay. Yeah. And even, even the gravel road route 40 was a really, really nice gravel road that could be done on touring bikes. I'd say, I mean, I think with a touring bike, you should be running at least, uh, at least 35, if not 40 mil plus tires. And that's what all my perspective is going to be based on. I'm running currently, uh, 45 in the front and 40 in the back. And it 
the time I was running 45 both front and back. Yeah, I think 45s is a really good a good size a good for number. touring. Yeah. Um, that's what I use on my gravel bike, and you know I can ride some pretty rugged riding. Uh, I mean, I've done the you know uh, butter tire 700 and the log drivers waltz here in, in Ontario uh, with 45 mil tires and raced it, you know and and oh, it's yeah. rough and, and it's hard and there's rougher terrain. Yeah. Yeah. And that's some yeah, of that's that some, is like legit stuff. single track, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. And you know, I would actually go back to 45 mil tires at the moment, but I have 40 mil on the back. And my perspective is that there's no need to fix something until it wears out. Yeah, or exactly. Replace something until it wears out. And at the moment you're not in, a, you know, you're in Europe. You don't really need, maybe once you get to central Asia, that's a different story. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so I should go pretty quickly across Canada. Yeah, I want to ask you a bit more about the, um, yeah. you know, the TCT and the prairies. Um, what is your thought on it? And is there like a better, a better way if you're looking to get through with like a bikepacking style or, you know, you want more of rad? I, I don't know. Is there anything other than just gravel roads? There are, there are so many options to get through the prairies. Uh, I don't think there is one ideal option. I mean, most people who go across Canada will take the, T, the uh, Trans-Canada Highway, the mm-hmm. TCTH. Um, and it's actually fast. It's got a decent shoulder uh, most of the time. I think it's safe, but I hate the noise of traffic and I hate just being next to racing semis all day long. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you want to do that, that's fine. You can you can just book it um, straight across the country. You'll be going, you know, you can get Vancouver to Ottawa in a month, uh, but you can always just kind of zigzag your way through all these uh, secondary roads. In Alberta, a lot of them are paved because they've got oil money and they, they pave them all over the yeah, place. Yeah, it's a lot harder to find <laughs> gravel. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot harder to find gravel. I did find some, um, and even the gravel was really nice. Uh, if it rains, it gets really bad. Uh, if it rains, I recommend sticking to pavement. I, I learned that in Saskatchewan. Okay. I had some pretty, pretty rough experiences about being stuck in, they call it gumbo mud, mm-hmm. uh, which is, I think, famous for sucking in farming equipment. Like, like Tractors can't even get through it. And that's the kind of like clay water mud that sticks to everything. It just gets into every single part of your bike and it'll take an hour and a pressure washer to get it out. Yeah. I've heard of, well, I mean, I've heard a lot of that uh, with New Mexico with uh, the tour divide and stuff. Mm -hmm. Like as soon as you get to New Mexico, all of a sudden the, if it rains, you are screwed. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. The rain will change everything for these gravel roads. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, so the way that I ended up going was I went Calgary to Drumheller. I think I took the whichever way was most practical. Uh, looks like Highway 9 here on the map. And then I zigzagged back from Drumheller, uh, kind of following the TCT all the way up to Edmonton. I didn't do one of the offshoots, which goes around a big lake. Uh, that would have added on about a day of riding. Mm-hmm. And most of that TCT was pretty good, uh, except I, I ended up fighting a headwind like 80% of the time across the prairies. That's, that's the funny thing is the wind is supposed to come from the west predominantly, but it just it it just doesn't all the time. Where, I feel like you go, you're going to get a headwind. I feel like yeah. it doesn't matter which direction you ride in the prairies, you're going to have a you're going to ride a headwind. Yes, <laughs> yeah. When I circled up from from Drumheller to Edmonton and then back across to uh, into Saskatchewan and then south to Saskatoon, like the wind just the headwind just followed me. It, it was uh, okay. like directly against me the whole time. Yeah, so I have to be honest. I was really know. lucky. I had a I had a I had one day where I rode 340 something kilometers because I had a tailwind. Ooh, that's a good day, and yeah. I was. Yeah, and it was a good tailwind, and I just rode for about eleven hours straight. And for just, sure, yeah, when you get those type of winds, you got to take advantage of it. Sometimes you just got to say like, "Oh well, I can't stop yeah. here." You know, I'm just getting on the road, and and I got this rip and tailwind, and I'm going to make this. Yeah, and there was a couple days where I had such a good, you know, lack of headwind. I should say, not necessarily a great tailwind, but just not a headwind. 
where yeah. I'm like, oh, you know, I should really ride late tonight. Just go till like four or five in the morning because I know tomorrow I'm looking at the looking at the weather forecast. It's going to be shit and I'm going to be miserable. Yeah. But then you get a little bit tired. and You're like, ah, oh, screw it. And you go to sleep and you wake up the next day. and You're like, why? Why did I stop? <laughs> yeah. Why did I uh, let go of that opportunity for sure? Yeah. And to touch on that topic, actually, about riding at night, that was something that I ended up doing quite a bit over the prairies. Mm -hmm. um, one big reason is I didn't feel like I was missing a lot of views alongside it because, you know, you're just riding alongside the soy or canola fields for mm -hmm. miles and miles and miles on end. I mean, every farm is quite literally a, a box that's one mile by one mile because that's how the grid system was developed. Yeah. Uh, and I actually found that if I had to be on a highway sometimes, it would actually be safer at night. Uh, I found that I was more visible because of all the reflectors and because yeah. of the front and the taillights. And I could see cars from five or 10 minutes away. If it's, if it's flat, you'd just see them from miles on end. So if there's only one car every 15 minutes and you're worried, there's no shoulder, you know, just move off to the side yeah. when that car passes you. Even coming from behind. Yeah. Their lights are for, for ages. You can, you know, there's a vehicle coming. Yeah. Ex exactly. Yeah. And it's yeah. super peaceful riding at night. Like often the, if the temperatures get too high in the day, you know, riding at night is a beautiful experience. Uh, you can see the stars. I, I wrote a bit under the Northern Lights, and that was just absolutely magical. Yeah, pretty incomparable. That's right. You that. went fairly far north, right? Ultimately, I went. I went pretty far north, a bit north of Edmonton. I ended up getting onto. I went through Elk Island National Park. I definitely recommend that if people are in the area. That was one of the most beautiful national parks. I had an incredible experience there. There's bison, um, just like wild bison that live in the park. That's cool. Uh, I'd heard about this, and you know, I didn't expect to see them. And and within 200 meters of going through the entrance there was there was a massive bison on either, either side of the road they were so well placed that i thought they were statues and, <laughs> right next to it. and i go oh my that that is a uh, yeah that is a full-on bison yeah i remember riding the alaska highway and it was the same thing but it was a herd like there was must have been 50 to 100 bison in the middle of the road and oh yeah, you're sitting there yeah. with your bike and you're like what the, what do i do like do i go forward what if they attack me you know and, yeah is that is that out by watson lake I, yeah I by watson lake up there yeah, yeah. for sure as yeah. epic, but you know, uh, yeah, I just waited till they moved a little bit, and then as soon as there was a bit of space, I started riding, and they just kind of moved out of the way. They didn't didn't care. Yeah, they're usually they're pretty docile. Um, actually, I had quite a lot of wildlife encounters, and unless you do, if you look at these videos of what people are doing in Yellowstone, you know, they're harassing the wildlife. If if you're respectful of wildlife, you're not going to have any issues. Yeah, um, like I was Hopefully. saying, actually. <laughs> yeah, to jump back, when I was on Route 40, I, I ran into my first grizzly bear there, there, and I had come come uh i was going up a hill and i saw it from maybe 100 yards away it was a big i think it was a male a big big one on the side of the road and i go hey bear hey bear you know uh can do you mind if i pass you by like i just want to get through is it okay you're talking to it in a in a normal voice or, or like a little bit of a louder normal voice but calm uh, and the bear didn't let me through or at least you know he didn't say anything to <laughs> to let me through uh, and then he started walking towards me uh, it was pretty intimidating. Uh, it didn't look like he was coming after me. He wasn't running or anything, but just started walking towards me. So I backtracked, uh, maybe about 400 meters or half a click. Did you just get on the and, bike and ride back or? Yeah. Cause yeah. I, I, I was going back down the hill. Uh, and then I think I was at the bottom of a divot and I didn't want to ride back up the next hill. Uh, I don't know how long this bear was going to keep walking down the road. So I just put the bike off to the side of the road on the other side of the road from where this bear, this bear was. And it ended up passing me. It was about 20 feet away. Uh, I had the bear spray like de-safety in my, in <laughs> ready my hand. To go. Yeah, absolutely. Ready to go. Uh, pointed at the bear and I was filming it with the, with the camera in the other hand, uh, not looking at it in the eyes, but looking, looking like through the camera. 
and yeah, it, it uh, basically didn't even give me uh, a glance longer than a split second. And the filming was, really was just uh, in case something happened, at least people would find this piece of film and go, oh, that's what yeah, happened to Nathan, yeah, right? I think I might have I might have had the GoPro going in the background for a while, like filming <laughs> me filming. Uh, but I actually got some really incredible footage of that. So by the time this podcast comes out, I, I swear I will have an Alberta video. I hope so. Like grizzly bear footage. Um, yeah, but it was really interesting because it was just digging out for uh, these uh, roots and tubers in the side of the road. Wow. Uh, which I learned later is uh, how it how it forages in the spring is it uses sight and smell to make the most efficient decisions of what it will eat and only digs what will give it enough energy because it's a very, very small root that it, that it eats and it doesn't want to spend too much time. You know, it's digging out like cubic foot at a time with its paw. Yeah. It's huge. It's intimidating. Um, and the, each claw is like the size of my finger. Uh, anyways, yeah. So, That's crazy. so that was the first bear. And then I saw, I saw one mama with three cubs and I watched them from a distance for about 15 minutes uh, until the mama kind of looked at me and I was like, okay, it's time to carry on. And then the next morning in Kananaskis lakes, I saw, uh, well, two black bear cubs with a mama and they, they didn't care at all. Um, mm-hmm. They were just eating grass. And I saw a grizzly, another grizzly bear, a smaller grizzly bear, and it didn't care at all. They were all eating grass. Like I had no issues with them. Oh, and then I had a, another mama grizzly bear with two baby cubs. So that was nine grizzly bears and three black bears wow. for 24 hours there in the mountains. Yeah, I never had – I don't worry much about black bears. I mean, obviously, like you said, respect nature. Don't be an ass. Don't do something stupid, yeah. you know, and hopefully you're not coming around the blind corner and you run right into them. And like, that's, yeah, that's the that, worst that, case that scenario. That could be bad for sure. Yeah. yeah. And uh, especially when they have cubs, that's when you got to really be yeah. careful. But, but, um, but like grizzlies, I don't know. They just add an extra little, extra little, uh, scare factor to everything. Cause oh, you I was know definitely, it. I was definitely quite nervous in that. Yeah. Like, I'm not going to lie. Uh, I was, uh, I was, uh, yeah, I wasn't sure how it was going to go. Cause the bear was coming towards me. And when you see those massive shoulders, just, you know, when the paws coming down, mm-hmm. and it's going right at you. It's like, okay, well, I guess this is happening now. Like, we'll see, we'll see how it goes. Yeah. What was it like getting through yeah. the prairies and then finally back into like the hill country? You know, that is Ontario and. Uh, oh, it was amazing. I mean, uh, the prairies is kind of like a good time to make a lot of distance going across Canada. Mm-hmm. Some people even skip it, although I, I recommend going across the country. You, you ride every mile. You know, that's that's my ethos. EFI. Um, for sure. Yeah. Apart from those times when I was stuck in mud, I found the riding to be pretty decent. I ended up hopping on the highways in Saskatchewan a fair bit, uh, on the Yellowhead for for a little bit. Yeah. I ended up on the TCH between Moose, uh, Moose Jaw and Regina. Uh, I had one good day where I got a good tailwind and I made about 200 clicks. <clears throat> I, had, I had a couple 200 click days in, across the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then through through Manitoba. In Manitoba, I had a lot of problems with uh, with, with the bugs. It's famous for its mosquitoes. Also ticks. There was one day I, uh, I was riding through one of the rail trails on the Trans Canada Trail, and had uh, I think the grand total came to twenty three ticks. It might, have, or maybe it was twenty seven. It was it was that's disgusting, nasty. Yeah, and for those who don't know, the ticks are the ones that will give you Lyme disease. So you really got to be careful, and the, and the goal is to get them out as quickly as possible and get and the head. Take the head out. Yeah. yeah. So I, I use tweezers and I, and I pull them out. Uh, often I'd even get them out before they were embedded, but. It was like almost every day. Yeah, was, yeah that's a pain. Getting ticks. Yeah, and you got to really like look yourself over, like mirror to butt and everything, like just because uh, yep. yep. you never know where I they was, could I be. I was getting into these like little municipal campgrounds and going in the shower, and I'd pull off more I didn't see, and then I'd wake up the next morning and and like two that I didn't find, maybe they were on my shirt or something, had crawled again, and I was pulling them off in the morning as well. I, at one point, I found two between my big toe and the next toe. That was oh, wow. an unpleasant experience. Everywhere, yeah. 
Oh yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Did you ever have any major mechanical issues? Uh, yeah. Once I got into Ontario, yeah, uh, you know, Ontario. Uh, that's when I had my first my first big problem. And I should have listened to folks. And everyone was saying, yeah, make sure you get like a full a full uh, tune up in Winnipeg because there's not going to be. Uh, a bike shop, you know, the next good bike shop is in, is in Thunder, Thunder Bay. Bay can, yeah, that's where I'd say. Yeah. I think you can go to Kenora or, or Dryden. There might be, there might be something, but I can't confirm if they will actually have any good, uh, good parts for you. Uh, so yeah, I mean, the Canadian shield was just so refreshing to, to be into again, like the, the forests are just so expansive. It's until you've been in, you know, Northern Ontario there, you have no idea just how vast it is mm-hmm. like miles and miles and miles of just trees forever. Uh, and lakes, beautiful lakes. Uh, and then when I and like was, Canadian forest is pretty, pretty thick. Like if you go to untamed forest and, you know, you try to go in 50 meters, it's work. Like, <laughs> yeah, you can't, you can't, you can't wild camp in the forest there. At least that's what I found. Yeah. Um, I'd always find a, a logging road and then kind of get off the logging road and do that if I needed to camp in the forest. But most of the time I would just find like a kind of a, a village with a, a public park, a small town, you know, less mm-hmm. than less than a thousand people. And I never had any issues wild camping. Yeah. I, I wild camped 95% of the way across the country or 90% of the way across the country. Yeah. Uh, and when I say wild camp, I mean, sometimes sneak into campgrounds and get out early in the morning, but it's beside the point. Anyways, uh, 50 kilometers. <laughs> I did the out, same, I did the same thing. So yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, it's, it's questionable, but, um, I wouldn't say sneak. Like I arrived at campgrounds cause I was riding long days and it was, there was nobody there and all they have is a yeah. cash box, like leave the money. But you know, Absolutely. this is yeah, 2020, kind of a, two, this is 2020 when I was riding, who the hell carries cash, you know, especially like yeah, for sure. 40, 50 bucks or whatever they wanted. And so I just set up camp in one of their spots. And the next morning, usually I left a couple hours before they ever even opened. So on those occasions, I was yeah. like, say la vie, yeah. you know, like. Like you're only there for nine hours, like to sleep, to rest and then go. Uh, yeah. And to get onto the, onto the pricing structure here. Yeah. These people are charging like minimum 25, 30 bucks uh, in Ontario. You know, it becomes closer to 50 or 60 yeah, it's bucks. It's crazy. And they're going to charge the same price, whether you have, this was all in the prairies. People would have you know, a 40 foot long RV being towed by like a Ford F-350, like a massive truck. They got six people and they can have multiple trailers on their vehicles. So in addition to the 40 foot RV, they'd also be towing like a power boat or like a bunch of jet skis. Yeah. Or like a or cargo trailer with ATVs or whatever. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. And because they're actually there long term, they get discounts for seven days. They're actually paying less per night than I would be paying to stay there per night. And I just like, I fundamentally disagree with that pricing model. Yeah. You know, I, I paid places where they had pricing for bicyclists or for like hiker biker prices mm-hmm. and you're in uh yesterday i actually didn't stay there i went a bit further but there was a campground that you know was charging me like four euros for the night and it was amazing yeah electricity like yeah a great deal yeah yeah um anyways yeah so the mechanical problem that happened outside of uh outside of ignis i was 50k before ignis which is a small town about halfway between the manitoba ontario border and thunder bay and i blew out my crank side bottom bracket bearings Mm. Uh, and that basically causes the the pedals or the the cranks to kind of shimmy side side to side up and down. You have a lot of play in them, and the inside of my inner chain ring started grinding out the bottom bracket cap. And you know, so the whole time I'm pedaling along, it's like this this nasty nasty grinding, just destroying everything that's a part of it. There's no bearings in there, uh, and I had just read an article by Carl Kroll, who's another bike packer who had yeah. fixed the same issue by, by shoving a banana peel inside the bottom bracket. Um, and so I didn't have a banana with me. I think I, I was carrying a lot of plums and I might've had a mango. 
So I, I tried skinning, skinning the mango and like feeding it into the hole in the bottom bracket cap and also all the plum juice. And it was like, it was a ridiculous situation. Uh, <laughs> I managed to make it grinding it out all the way to Ignis, uh, camped the night, went the next morning to a cafe and just like asked the person, I was like, hey, do you, hey, do you know anyone who t- in town who rides a bicycle? That, that was step one. Yeah. You know, maybe they have tools that can help me out. Um, and sure enough, this guy who just did some casual like cycling, you know, just around town, actually helped me out for about three or four hours that day. Um, the big issue was we couldn't get the bottom bracket out because one of the screws that was holding my uh, crank arm in place was stripped. And so the only way to get the crank arm off to get the bottom bracket out was to drill out the the screw from the crank arm, in which case I would not have been able to put it back on and keep riding. Mm. So, you know, it's like, what would be the point? And the solution we came up with was we ended up feeding a bunch of hay bale twine into the bottom bracket using the rotation of, of the pedals to wrap that around the inside of the bottom bracket about uh, seven or eight times, tying it off. We had to make sure we got the rotation right so it wouldn't unwind itself while I was riding. Mm-hmm. Um, that was tied off to one to the crank arm there on the, on the chain ring side. And then that was held in with zip ties. And then like the zip tie was held in with another zip tie. And then we pumped about a hundred mils of grease just straight into the floor. And they were just like, just grease everything. And uh, yeah, it did enough to get me another 250 kilometers all the way to Thunder Bay. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. And at the same time, when I got to Thunder Bay, actually, I looked at my rim, my rear rim, and it was probably about 20 seconds away from failure. And I was just so, so, so lucky that the, that did not fail on a big hill coming into Thunder Bay because I probably would have died. Yeah. And, you know, crashed uh, catastrophically. Uh, so yeah, in Thunder Bay, I had to do a lot of replace a pl- replacing of gear. Um, they did have a bike shop that had some stuff, but they didn't have everything that I needed. Mm. Uh, I started running 48, 36, 26 on my, on my gearing. That's the stock uh, survey gearing. It's Shimano Alivio. Uh, they did not have that. And so I ended up getting a 50, 39, 30, which for those in the know is uh, road style gearing. It's 30 is very low for, or it's very high for bike touring. When you go up a hill, you're going to be pushing really, really hard because you don't have that uh, low speed spinning. Like uh, you don't have the granny gear, it's less. Um, but that is what they had. And I just had to, you know, carry on as yeah. it was. Yeah. And also my 36 hole rear rim, uh, which is built for touring. They didn't have any 36, uh, 36 wheels or 36 rims. And I went to a 32, uh, which ended up being a big issue later on down the line. Yeah. I can imagine just because of the weight. And like you said, the, maybe the style of riding you're doing as well with your the style your of riding bike, yeah. for sure. And the weight, both of them together, but you know, it, it is what it was. And, uh, I had to get something to keep me moving as opposed to wait for parts to get shipped in. So yeah. yeah, that got sorted and, and I carried on. So that. reaching Thunder Bay and like now you're at Lake Superior and um, where does the TCT go from there and how did you? There, there is no TCT here. So all the way okay. from the Manitoba, Ontario border, that's the, the exact spot where you get on the highway and everyone's going to have to get on the highway here, the Trans-Canada. There's just um, no other route, is there? Not really. There's no other route. Yeah. I mean, you can take either the north route or the south route, yeah. um, either the 17 or the 11. And then once you get to Nipigon, you can actually go up north through the 11. Almost nobody does that because that's the route for truckers. It, it, mm-hmm. it skips all the way from Thunder Bay straight to Montreal. It misses everything else in Ontario. Um, yeah, it's the middle of nowhere. Uh, so I, almost everyone's going to ride through the highway along the north coast 
of Lake Superior. And it's a very, very beautiful ride. Lake Superior is incredible country, mm-hmm. although the highway is known as being very, very fast with a lot of traffic and having very little shoulder. So that was actually the only period of the trip where I had one of those little helmet mirrors on and I had it on the entire time and spent my spent my days, you know, cross-eyed with one eye looking in the mirror. I was spending more time looking behind me than I was looking yeah. forward. It gave me a headache. Uh, that's why I don't wear it uh, any other times, but it was necessary because semi-drivers, they're usually very, very respectful. Um, will give you a lot of space, the professional drivers. Uh, but if you get one coming the other way and one going your way, it can't move over. So you got to be ready that if that's happening, you see it coming and you mm-hmm. have to ditch into the gravel. Uh, which I, I, you know, by ditch, I mean, just get into the gravel and hopefully remain control. Yeah. And it's not that they're out to, to get you, but they don't always think clearly in time that they, maybe they're just not judging the distance and timing, right. And thinking, Oh, I'm going to reach a cyclist at the same time that the other transport coming the other way is going to reach yeah. the cyclist. And, um, yeah. no, I, I didn't have many issues with semis. I find that as far as big trucks go, semis are pretty good. They're really good. Yeah. Uh, it's camper vans and stuff yeah. is more. Uh, well, we didn't have as many camper vans this year, actually, because of gas prices were high. So yeah. less people were driving these gas guzzlers. It was like over two bucks uh, a liter, um, which for Canada is is relatively expensive compared to what we had in the past. So it seemed there was less mm-hmm. tourists. Yeah. Um, and yeah, that's what I had heard was the biggest issue where people who don't have experience driving large vehicles now driving these camper vans on narrow winding roads. Um, so yeah, luckily not a lot of problems with those. I found that the drivers of big trucks that haul aggregates, like either the hog haulers or, or dump trucks, I think they get paid in a different pricing model. Uh, and because of oh, that, okay. they were a little more aggressive, but um, that, that's personal experience. That's mm-hmm. subjective. So yeah. <clears throat> nice. Yeah. Lake Superior is a really, really nice ride. Uh, I went down into a little town called Marathon and I spent two nights on the beach there. It was like one of the most beautiful places in the entire country. <clears throat> Mind you, I kind of said me. that about every place I went every single day. <laughs> yeah. And then a really interesting thing is in, uh, in White River, there is a place marked on Google Maps as the unofficial cyclist campground, which is just in the, in the town park. Uh, and they allow you to set up your tent there. It's like kind of a spot for people going across the country to either camp in their vehicles or to oh, nice. cyclists in the park. And that's where I had the most, the most people, most cycle tourists in one day. I think there was uh, seven, eight or nine of us, half, half going west and half going east. So that was a really nice, really nice night there. Yeah. I apologize for that noise up above. It's clear my daughter is uh, throwing her water bottle around. <laughs> it's like thunk. I hope you don't hear too much from the, ho- from the hotel. I don't hear anything it's from your hotel, decent. no. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I think I've also at Sault Ste. Marie is where you, there's the, uh, what do they call it, the Great Lakes Trail? Is that where that starts in Sault Ste. Yes. Ste. Marie? Yes, yeah, that, that is, uh, you will hop on the Great Lakes Trail as part of the Trans-Canada Trail. At the Sioux, that they call it, is the Sioux, yeah. where the... Yeah, where you can finally get off the Trans-Canada Highway. Uh, and the Great Lakes Trail is really, really nice. It'll ride on these uh, secondary roads, gravel roads. You know, it add, adds a little bit of distance, but uh, I got no complaints about that. And instead of going the way that the Trans-Canada Trail goes through Sudbury, I ended up going through Manitoulin, which is a really, really that's beautiful island. Too. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's where most cyclists will go. And then you can take the ferry over to over to Tobermory. Yeah, and, and, and just about the, Manitoulin, for people that don't know from like, you know, everywhere else in the world other than Ontario, probably uh, Manitoulin Island is the world's largest freshwater Island. Like, so it's, it it's, is the world's it, largest uh, freshwater. It island. is massive. Also, yeah. It has, it also has the largest lake in a freshwater Island 
in the world and also the largest island in a lake on an island in a lake. In yeah. So it's like three, three, three levels yeah. of, uh, of claims to fame there. And yeah, it's also it's... just beautiful, incredible people there. Uh, the population is 50% First Nations, so there's a lot of cultural heritage to check out. Mm-hmm. Uh, and really, really friendly, great cycling network and lots of like artisans and shoreline. Yeah, it's amazing. It. Uh, Manitoulin Island kind of breaks up Lake Huron and the, the part of, to the north of it, they call it the North Channel. And it's also some of the world's best freshwater sailing. So like they got lots of claims to fame and uh, it's a really beautiful area. Yeah, for my sure. dad Those sails lakes, in summer. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah. Superior and Lake Huron are, are just something special until you go there. Like it's, it's absolutely stunning. You got to mm-hmm. see it to believe it. So yeah, anyways, you took Manitoulin and, and then crossed over to Tobermory to what, yeah, what we would call Tobermory. Southern Ontario. Yeah, for sure. Um, actually, to jump all the way back to, sure. to BC, uh, I met, I think, my first two... I met a, a couple cycle tourists along the way. I met two on the Kootenay Bay Ferry. One of them was Stephen, who I was cycling with in, in uh, Fernie. And the other one was uh, Liz Pomeroy, Zero Stella, who you interviewed before. Yeah. Um, and so I cycled a few days with them. Actually, when I came down from Great Creek, I met back up with them and we stayed at uh, a friend of mine's parents' place. And then we carried on our separate ways. And I met up with Liz again uh, in Manitoulin. I was staying with friends of friends. And then we ended up cycling together to Tobermory. And we spent uh, a morning in Tobermory and we went snorkeling in the, uh, in the shipwrecks. There's a bunch nice. of shipwrecks in the harbor and it's really, really cool to check out because uh, the water is so clear. You can see, uh, you know, 50 or 60 feet. Very cold, but, uh, but beautiful. Anyway, so that was a cool thing that happened is to meet people again, you know, all the way across the country. Yeah. And then I, yeah, I know you told that. me you ran into Liz again in Quebec City or something as well. Uh, later on in Quebec City, yeah. 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 It's a small uh, anyway, world. So, it is, yeah. When you're actually going across the country as a cycle tourist, you can always run into each other, especially in Ontario, when there's only that one route, because you're going to start leapfrogging people and see each other again uh, mm-hmm. a couple of days later. This this Polish couple that I had ran into five or six times, you know, day after day, all the way from Thunder Bay to the ferry of Manitoulin, I ended up seeing them in downtown Toronto off the bike in a crowd of like 10,000 people just by chance, like, you know. What are the what are the chances? Small of chances. Uh, yeah. yeah, I think it's a small I, world. What I find though is like your your route that you took across Canada as well. I mean, even just Ontario is, for the most part, very different than the vast majority. You know, like I think most people tend to cross Canada. It's a lot more of a road bike ride. Uh, they stay to typically paved roads, either the Yellowhead or the TCH or or Highway Three in the south. I think it's called Highway Three. I forget the number. Um, uh, in BC it is, yeah, I'm not sure what it turns yeah, into. Yeah, I forget what it turns yeah. into, but anyway, so it's like, it's just a, a certain number of routes, but then a lot of people tend to go across Ontario because they're already in the north of Ontario. They tend to just stay along Highway 17 and, you know, they... Yeah, I definitely don't recommend Highway Highway 17 uh, past yeah. Sudbury. Yeah. Yeah. One of the, when someone got hit there this, this year and, and oh, yeah? it ended up being okay, but uh-huh. yeah. Um, yeah, just outside of Deep River. <laughs> oh, okay, yeah, this, it's just because yeah. it's so it's constantly up and down hills. There's not a big shoulder. It's, it's a yeah, same not. problem that all the north of Ontario really has. So I think your route going south makes more sense, you know, because there's a lot more options. Yeah, there are a lot of options down here, and there's a lot of big networks of rail trails, and then you kind of can just go anywhere. You know, there's I mean, Toronto is a collection of what like 25 different cities now. Mm-hmm. Um, it can be a little chaotic getting in in and out of these cities, uh, but in Canada, generally, these cities have very decent bike path networks. As long as you're willing to do a little bit of route finding to mm-hmm. get yourself in into a city safely, that way you don't have to ride on an expressway. Yeah, and you can also just skip Toronto and stay north, like 
towards like like kind of Vaughn or just north of there, you know, New Market. And you all could, that yeah, stuff. some people even ride through Algonquin Park uh, or mm-hmm. or kind of through the center of Ontario. There, I ended up uh, going out to Aurelia or to Wachago and and visiting some friends there, you know, kind of like ment- mentors there. Mm-hmm. Spend a few nights and then and then went back south. Came into Toronto uh, via Mississauga. Uh, it was a really interesting day because uh, Toronto got some major rainstorms and that had happened the day that I was coming down this Mississauga river trail. And when I started on the trail, it's like a beautiful path right next to the river. And by the time I got to the end of it, uh, where I had come from was getting maybe 200 millimeters of rain from this like massive yeah, that's a lot isolated of rain. Uh, rain cloud. And the river ended up flooding, which is very common. Actually, they actually have life preservers next to the river because it, it floods, uh, so frequently and i had to get out of the river because you know the trail was now under two feet of water and Mm -hmm. it only happened in the span of like 45 minutes uh yeah and then toronto is just is crazy i came in on the uh on the waterfront trail again through downtown toronto and i passed by the uh what are they called? Is it the PNE in Toronto, the, P- the Pacific National Exhibition? Maybe I'm thinking of the one in Vancouver. Ontario. Yeah, the one where... I don't know, remember. <laughs> CNE, Canadian yeah. National Exhibition. The CNE, yeah. yeah, thank you. Uh, so, yeah, when I passed right by there, the it, I think it was like the first day that it opened after, after COVID or the first weekend. And I swear I saw more people in five kilometers of trail outside the CNE than I did the entire rest of the country. Oh, wow. Like even just seeing like a million people in trail. Yeah. It's got yeah. absolute, just like mind blowing culture shock. Uh, yeah, I know it's funny because I'm looking at Google maps and I'm zoomed in on Toronto right now. And all I see is red lines because it's traffic time and <laughs> it's like, traffic? Oh, yeah. red. Oh, yeah. it's yeah. all red. It's, it's uh, all in red. It's rush hour right there. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, for sure. I mean, you shouldn't look at Vancouver. They got just walloped with 50 centimeters of snow and you know, no one, no one's got snow tires. They don't have snow yeah. plows out there. So, yeah. Anyways, yeah. So from Toronto to Ottawa, that's pretty straightforward. I followed the Trans-Canada Trail. Um, I'd say about 85 to 90% of that was on a really, really nice rail trail. Oh, okay. One section, I don't remember the name of it, unfortunately. I'll have to come back to that. Uh, was mixed use with ATV. And when you add on these ATVs to these mm-hmm. rail trails, it just gets really, really rough. Um, and yeah, if you want to get off the road, sure, you can just take your time and, and you know, push through sand and dirt. But uh, there was a part that I ended up just going on these uh, secondary roads and they were nice anyways. Yeah, I, yeah I, I've had a little Charlotte, bit of experience on that ride. too. Yeah. It's like the yeah. K&P Railway also had some sections that are mixed use with ATVs and they just destroy yeah. it and churn it and yeah. yeah, the section of the KNP that I was on uh, was actually really decent. I think that was Char- Charbot Lake down. Yeah, to, it's pretty there. Yeah, down to Sydenham or something. Anyways, yeah, there's there's so many rail trails in in southern Ontario here. You can just pick your poison and see what mm-hmm. see what you want to do. Yeah, I think Charbot Lake to Herring- Hardington, and um, and that's when I think it changes to Cataraqui. I think. Yeah, right around there or Sydenham, like you said. So yeah, but that's that's really nice. Find us like. Uh, you know, gravel dusted. Um, yeah. It's really good. Yeah. And then from Ottawa, uh, so my family's in Ottawa. So I spent nine days there. Uh, this was uh, end of August, early September. I think I left mm-hmm. Ottawa September 4th or 5th. Uh, headed north, continued on the Trans-Canada Trail here. Uh, Quebec is one of the most amazing places to cycle in the world. I think they've got a, a absolutely world-class cycling infrastructure on what they call the Route Vert or the Greenways in English. Uh, if you want to go take a look at the map for people listening, you can go to the Quebec the search up Route Vert, and that's uh, V-E-R-T-E. 
rootbert.com, and they have an interactive map where not only will they show you what the quality of the trail is, whether it's gravel or road with a shoulder or paved paved path or secondary road. They will also show you if there's a steep grade. You can look up picnic areas, and they also update when things are under construction and provide maps of detours. It is incredibly well done. That's fine. I've ridden a lot of different routes here, but I've never spent that much time looking at the site, but I guess it does pay off to do that. And it does pay off. I'm very, very impressed with what Quebec has done, both with their cycle trail network and then just actually providing information on that network. And we should throw out there that like, you know, probably 10, 15 years ago, not that long ago, only you never heard a good thing about cycling in Quebec. Like it was always dangerous people you know it was it was just never good things and then they went and they really invested in developing this infrastructure and it is fantastic like it's really i I didn't know about that so that's good to hear that they've they've made these uh these advancements i mean they have quite an outdoor focused population uh just like ottawa so yeah it's obviously worked in their favor or maybe it's in my mind maybe in my mind it was just cycling in quebec is terrible you know but (laughs) maybe yeah i I don't know i think it's illegal to ride on the highways in quebec so i mean if you're not riding on the route you're making a massive mistake well there's another thing that they did and what's uh they call it the uh Corridor de Sécurité, so the security corridor, which means if there's an emergency vehicle on the side of the road, you have to move over an entire laneway. So you you can't just pass within a few feet. And if you're on a two-lane road and there's a cop on the shoulder, you have to slow down so it's safe that you can cross the... Oops, sorry, I hit my mic. Cross the yellow line and give that big space. So in essence, when this happened and they made this a, a law that you had to do this, they instinctively just started doing the same for cyclists. So I find in Quebec, I've never seen so many drivers give so much space to pass. It's consistent. You know, there's the occasional car that gives you half a lane and you're like, why'd you pass me so close jerk? Because you get so used to having an entire lane. Uh, It's pretty awesome. Yeah. Yeah, they're usually pretty decent. Mind you, I almost didn't even know because I spent so much time on just separated bike lanes and completely uh, on, uh, on bike path on its own. Anyways, yeah, so from Ottawa, I, went, I worked my way up to uh, Mont-Laurier and rode the uh, Petit, le, Petit, Petit Train de, no, de Nord, yeah, yeah. which I know you had, uh, I think you'd actually ridden it uh, a couple weeks before I was there. Oh, okay. Uh, uh, yeah, and that is one of the, the best bike routes, I think, in the country. It runs 240 kilometers from Mont-Laurier down into, into Montreal, into Montreal. And it passes through the beautiful Quebec countryside through Mont Tremblant. Yeah, it's, it's beautiful. a mix of uh, mostly paved, uh, and then the gravel is you know you could ride it with with a children's bike or with like twenty two millimeter skinny tires. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it's fantastic. And you can uh, you can kind of camp anywhere. I don't know about the actual legalities, but they had like a picnic area every five kilometers, and you just pitch up. And, yeah, sometimes yeah. it was weird though. Like sometimes there were signs saying like no tents. Like there's, I forget what town we were in, but there was um, the, one of the old train stations. There was a sign that said no tents, but at the same time they had hookups for electricity and water and, and public use washrooms as well. And a hose to fill up your, your camper van's tank. Oh, interesting. But you weren't allowed yeah. camping. We camped there anyways. We were like, <laughs> whatever. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Some, <laughs> some places say it, you know, you, you never know until you get there uh, often. And sometimes you just got to do it anyways, because you don't want to ride any further, but mm-hmm. Yeah. And if you go to the Route Vert map as well, you can even look up the picnic areas and kind of oh, get a cool. sense for, uh, it'll tell you what it has, if it has a washroom or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And it's funny because a lot of people asked me actually, it's like, oh, how did you get through Montreal? Or, or isn't it a disaster going through Montreal? It's like, 
so good. I, it's yeah, it's amazing. I couldn't get out of a bike lane if I tried. I would make a wrong turn and end up in another bike lane. It actually got lost because I just kept making wrong turns into into random bike lanes, and it was fine. I just zigzagged my way until yeah. I got to the city. Montreal is investing millions into their bike infrastructure, and like, and it's interesting because I had um, uh, David Shelnut, who is the biking lawyer, on the podcast recently, and we were talking about Toronto, where Toronto is like the antichrist to what Montreal is doing for bikes. You know, like Montreal is spending so much money to make it good, and Toronto is just like uh, vilif- vilifying cyclists, and you know, it's just it's just weird yeah, how different some it is. Strange things going on in uh, in Ontario at the time being to. But we don't want to get into that. <laughs> yeah. Anyways, yeah. So, yeah, Montreal, fantastic, beautiful city. Uh, I took the south route through there, uh, down through Chambly, oh, okay, Granby, yeah. uh, Sherbrooke. Uh, it's the it's the route that the Trans Canada takes. Oh, is it okay? The, sorry, Trans Canada Trail, uh, all the way to Quebec City. Mm-hmm. And it gets on uh, that rail. Tra- it's just a pretty long rail trail that goes. Um, oh, I forget where. I know it it's goes. almost all rail trails. I mean, each rail trail is like named its own little thing. And usually they only last about 25 kilometers. Then you're in, in some other jurisdiction mm-hmm. and that's some other rail trail, but it's all fantastic quality. Yeah. goes right past one of my cousin's houses and that's where, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And then in Quebec City, uh, I took the ferry from Lviv over to Quebec City to spend the night in Quebec City. And the ferry is only like three bucks or four bucks or something. Yeah. It's very cheap and, and quick. It's better than the bridge, in my opinion. Yeah, the bridge uh, is nice, then, but I think if you have panniers and stuff, it's it's definitely a tight pass if another person comes the other direction. It's a really, really weird feeling. Yeah, so. yeah. And the ferry puts you directly into Old Town Quebec City, like directly into there. Yeah, it's an, uh, it's right an epic way to enter the city there. for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so then when I left, I, I knew Liz was in, in Quebec City because I'd seen it on Instagram. Uh, and we just happened to get onto the same ferry again, uh, riding south out of Quebec City into Lviv, so that was a, an amazing coincidence. And we spent the day riding again together, uh, taking the south route through, sorry, south of the Saint Lawrence River, mm-hmm. all the way to Rivière de Loup, uh, and then from Rivière de Loup, I hopped north onto the north side of the of the Saint Lawrence to go through Tadoussac. Oh, okay. Uh, this is an area that's very famous for whale watching, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, you can see belugas. Actually, I saw a bunch of belugas taking the ferry that's wild. across that's wild. into Tadoussac. I uh, spent a night camping by the ocean and I was watching like minky whales, you know, hundred feet outside of my tent, like from the tent window. Huh. Just, yeah. That was actually one of the few places I, I was like, okay, I'm paying the 36 bucks or whatever for camping so I can whale watch That's while, wild. you know, sitting in my sleeping bag. Yeah. yeah well worth it. Uh, and did you cycle north I, at all uh, from Tadoussac or you just came back across the river again? Uh, well, yeah, there's, there's quite a few ferries that go. Uh, you can go to, I came from Les Escamins. That's the first first one going back south again from the north side of Tadoussac. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's another one that goes from Forestville to Ramouski, but I think that might have closed for the season uh, okay. by the time I got there. You can even go further up to Bay Como. Bay Como, yeah. Or, yeah, or even – there's there's quite a few. I mean, the, the, Quebec's got a lot, of, a lot of ferries that go through the St. Lawrence, uh, but some of them end, you know, close to Labor Day, so – you do oh, have to okay. watch out for that. Yeah. Um, actually, kind of for everything, you know, after Labor Day, a lot of places will uh, will close up. Uh, yeah. And because... Unfortunately, I didn't ride the gas pay. Oh, no? Uh, I just, yeah, I just, it was going to add about five or six days time. Uh, and the wind wasn't ideal. You know, it kind of would have headwinded me all the way around. So I ended up going through uh, the Matapedia Valley to cut across from Ramouski down to Campbellton, New Brunswick. And that was an amazing ride. It was a really What's unique, the route uh, there? Experience. So you go from Ramouski to, like, is that the one through Montjoly and then Sebec and then that way? Uh, I don't recognize the name. No. Uh, oh, Montjoly, I think. Yes, yes. 
Uh, it's the only paved road I see. That's for sure paved. Yeah, it's a paved road. Yeah, and it's it's got like a, a nice shoulder, I believe. Yeah, it was really beautiful. Yeah, There's lots of salmon fishing on that scale. river and beautiful mountains. It's a gorgeous ride. So from Campbellton, you did you follow like Highway 11 uh, along to Bathurst and stuff? Like more of the the following the. Yeah, more or less. I might have been on Highway 11 at one point. If you go in a little bit further, I think Mm. there was one that runs closer to the coast. Yeah, I see. uh, And I followed that. Uh, Actually, the day that I left Campbellton was the day or the day before the uh, Hurricane Fiona hit the East Coast. This is a a big (laughs) event for the East Coast this this year. Yeah, it's pretty wild. Uh, And because of the way that the Coriolis effect makes these storms rotate, which is anti-clockwise in the Northern Hemisphere... Uh, the eye of the storm was like somewhere around southern eastern Nova Scotia. I was basically having this like amazing tailwind. I, I literally got like sucked straight into a hurricane uh, from Campbellton, and I made it all the way to to Miramichi. That was 208 kilometers. I did, and it was like one of the fastest rides I've wow. ever done. It was like eight eight and a half or nine hours, which for me is like fairly fast. Um, yeah, you know, I've done, got yeah. big tires and a lot of a lot of gear. Um, one thing I did want to kind of shout out to is that. There is a really good cycling network, at least from what I've heard, along the Acadian Peninsula, which is east of Bathurst and east of Miramichi uh, in New Brunswick. And they have about 600 kilometers of marked cycle routes to go out into that peninsula. Oh, yeah? And I think that would be a really, really great option for people to explore if they want to do a little sightseeing or go for an adventure out there. Unfortunately, I just didn't go out there because I... Mm actually needed to take, I took a hotel that night, the hurricane came and I didn't want to be stuck out in the peninsula dealing with storm surge and, you know, 90 kilometer an hour winds, which is what they were having. So yeah. Yeah. I just skipped that part. Um, and from there, Miramichi, uh, yeah, rested, rested for a night, uh, sheltered from the hurricane, still had some pretty good wind from it. The next day went down to, uh, Kusha Bujwak, which I know I'm pronouncing terribly wrong. So probably better than I would have done. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, people told me like a dozen times and I still couldn't figure it out. Uh, that was actually, the park had trees down everywhere. Like it was, right. It was only 12 hours after the hurricane had come and they had no power. They had no washrooms. They had, they had nothing. And so I, they just let me camp for free. So I got into the national park and usually I pay for the national parks because they have actually good prices. You can, you can get a site with the washroom access for yeah. 23 bucks, which I think is very reasonable. And we should add that, like, this was a major storm, you know, like for Canada, it's probably not as big as some of the places that get nailed with hurricanes in the U.S. and stuff. But for Canada, like, this is was houses got washed out into the ocean and, you know, like landslides took down cliffs where, you know, like just completely devastated a huge swath of eastern Canada. Uh, a huge portion of PEI, actually, I'll get into that. Yeah. PEI got uh, just just absolutely wrecked by that hurricane. They're going to be recovering for a long time. And they've already had a few instances in the last years. I know the Hurricane Dorian and whichever one. Yeah, they're they're getting hit now harder. You know, the mm. storms are increasing in severity. Uh, but, yeah. Uh, after Kusha Bujwak, uh I kind of wanted to go to Fredericton. I, I wanted to go see all the provincial capitals. Oh, okay. uh, so I did. Uh, so I kind of worked my way through these, like, roads in the middle of New Brunswick. Uh, it was really, really quiet. There's, not, there's like nothing there in the middle of New Brunswick. It's just forestry. Uh, I did make a little detour down alongside Grand Lake. That was a really nice ride alongside that. I had a nice wild camp on a beach in Grand Lake mm-hmm. and then worked my way into Fredericton where I immediately kind of like got in and left. It's kind of crazy. It's such a small provincial capital that I felt like I rode across it in, 
you know, 10 minutes and I was like, oh, they're okay. I'm on the other side. I guess I turn around and keep on my, keep going. Can, <laughs> yeah. Keep going. Yeah. Um, and then from Oromocto, I think there's a few different options you have to get down into St. John. Uh, I took the Eastern option, which is the way that the Trans Canada Trail goes. That's uh, number 102. And I thought that was pretty decent. Um, relatively speaking to, to some things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then from St. John, I rode as much as I could alongside the Fundy Coast, pretty much whatever was a practical ride along the Fundy God, Coast. It's beautiful, these, isn't it? Uh, so beautiful. And the Fundy, the Bay of Fundy, for people who don't know, is famous for having the highest tides in the world. The further east you get, uh, they go up to 13 or 14 meters. I think actually one spot that I went to had tides in the range of uh, 16 meters. No kidding, huh? Which is like 40, 40 feet. Uh, and it's very famous. So you can go to these little towns and, you know, the boats will be sitting on the ocean floor on the mud. And then the, the, when the tide rises, the fishermen can go out and they can come back in and then the boats will sit back on the ocean floor. Uh, yeah. So that's a really nice, really nice route. There's a brand new, it's called the Fundy Trail Parkway. It's a, it's a paid parkway. I think you have to pay like 11 bucks or something to get through there. Uh, but that's a big these big massive hills up and down from the ocean uh, for about 15 kilometers. And I thought that was well, well worth it uh, to ride the Fundy Trail Parkway. Now that that's, you have a, that road is also like, um, yeah, the Fundy Trail Parkway. And there's a, I don't know if it's a trail right beside it. Um, there, Fundy yeah, so foot, there, oh, it's a, a footpath. Yeah. It. yeah. Uh, the Fundy footpath is a long, like, hike, long, long hiking trail. They do have a recreation trail, like multi-use trail for bikes next to the Fundy Trail Parkway. Okay. It was very, very steep in sections. Oh, yeah? <laughs> not above 20%. I would not recommend it. Like, you're going to be hitting the limit of your brakes. Uh, it was a good time, but, yeah, I definitely walked up some hills okay. and had some spicy moments with some loose gravel. Yeah, we, we, uh, went, um, we went kind of opposite direction, but we took the Fundy Trail Parkway as well when we drove into uh, St. John's. Oh yeah, nice. From yeah. the Hopewell Rocks. Sweet. Yeah. Yeah. Uh and then from there, yeah, through Fundy National Park, down to Alma, out over to Hopewell Rocks. I think I did take another one of these little detours uh to go close. I went as close as I could to to the ocean basically mm-hmm. at at all times. Uh Hopewell Rocks is another must see. That's just so unique with those flower pot rocks. Yeah, it's pretty wild. Except the road from Hopewell Rocks into into Moncton, that was I think the worst one of the worst roads that I had in Canada at this point, it was the end of our, uh, the end of September, maybe early October. And there's no shoulder there. And you know, there should be less traffic, but I remember having to actually like ditch into the side of the road because oh, someone wow. passed, uh, coming my way when there was no shoulder and he could still see me. And he, you know, it was like, a, I got a 4,000 pound truck coming at me. I can't play chicken with that. Uh, so I think there's some alternate routes. I'd I'd say take the the side roads from there. Uh, oh, okay. But, you know, again, this is personal experience, so it mm-hmm. is what it is. Uh, oh, it's good. It's good really... valuable information for anybody planning to. Uh... Yeah, absolutely. Uh, uh, in New Brunswick, actually, uh, it might have just been because I came from Quebec with the cycling infrastructure that's the best in the world. But I found the New Brunswick roads to be a little bit lacking in quality of, of road surface slash mm-hmm. shoulder, and occasionally there were some uh some out, some drivers that were you know out to push you know push the limits and and maybe get close to vehicular manslaughter so <laughs> personal experience but be careful out there yeah yeah 
Yeah, it's hard. It's hard after cycling through Quebec and how great it is with in terms of infrastructure for cyclists, and then all of a sudden, anywhere else is not going to probably feel as. Yeah, good. it's almost like you just want to turn around and keep cycling <laughs> Quebec. Honestly, <laughs> like it's so amazing. <laughs> yeah. Plus, you know, great food and culture, and and just such incredible scenery, especially along the St. Lawrence River so, and uh, through the Eastern Cantons. It's amazing. Yeah, and so getting up to Moncton, I guess, then you can cross the river and then head towards PEI, right? Uh, yeah, Moncton, I went straight to Shediac. Mm -hmm. uh, Moncton, I, I stayed and I timed the, uh, they call it the tidal bore, uh, which is when the tides come in through the Bay of Fundy, actually the way they, they come all the way up the river because the river is tidal as well. And oh. with such a massive volume of water coming in, it actually comes in as this wave and it can range anywhere from, you know, 10 centimeters, I think as high as up to a, a meter in the past. People even surf on this on this tidal bore. Whoa, uh, cool. When it's uh, a larger one. So it's a really cool thing to witness it happens twice a day uh they got uh, tide times online uh you got to get there 30 minutes before because it's not exact you know depending yeah. on how the tide comes in but that was really cool to watch uh so i spent uh luckily i, I timed it really well i knew that was going to happen so i got to see that how high was uh, it yeah straight to shediac uh maybe maybe 40 or 50 centimeters oh that's cool uh, right. yeah but it's like quite a it's a solid line of, of frothing water it's it's really cool uh, yeah, from Shediac, kind of rode along the coast all the way to the Confederation Bridge. I actually rode out to uh, Cape, Ger Cape Germain Nature Center, which is where the Confederation Bridge officially leaves land. And I thought that was, I didn't, I thought it was where the shuttle picked up because you can't ride across uh, the Confederation yeah. Bridge, um, which is a 13 or 14 kilometer long bridge that connects New Brunswick to PEI. Uh, there, there, I, I would love to ride across it. It looks like there's a great shoulder. But because of the risk of uh, crosswind, they don't allow people. And I guess no. that makes a lot of sense. So they do provide a free shuttle service. It's free to go to PEI, but you got to pay to leave PEI. That's funny. Yeah, it, it is. Uh, it's actually, I think, the same for the bridge as well. You, you get a free travel with, a, with car to get to PEI. But you oh, that's right. Leave. Yeah, yeah, we paid to yeah. leave. That's right. We drove there yeah. last 2021. Uh, Anyway, so for those who are listening and want to take that route, the ferry, the shuttle pickup is not at Cape Germain. It's actually at the corner of the 955 and, and the 16. It's, it's marked on Google Maps as the Confederation Bridge shuttle. That's where you go to meet it. So don't end up having to cycle back five kilometers to meet the, uh, meet the shuttle like I did. Mind you, mm. there is a button that you use to call the shuttle, and it still took like two hours to arrive, uh, and that... I've heard is not uncommon. It, it can take anywhere from 10 minutes to two hours for the shuttle to come pick you up. So plan your day uh, expecting to take a little bit of time uh, to get there. Interesting. Good to know. Yeah. 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 Or just ask somebody for a ride. <laughs> Wave down the car. Yeah, honestly, it might work. Like if you're... Uh, if you're able to find a good spot on the shoulder and just kind of wave someone down with the truck and put it in the back of the mm -hmm. car, that would be actually very practical. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The same, same with a lot of places, right? So I rode all the way up to Charlottetown that day, uh, Charlottetown, sorry. Uh, and stayed with the uh, someone there. And How then, was it? How was the ride? Like this is just a little bit after the, uh, the, the uh, hurricane. It was, it was so wild. Uh, Cause you know, I had seen a, few, a bit of storm damage in New Brunswick but as soon as you get onto PEI, they just got absolutely walloped. Like uh, there were trees down. Well, they're so flat like too, right? So, yeah, lines and lines of trees mm. down along the side of the highway. I rode the Trans Canada Highway into into Charlottetown. Okay. That was the fastest way because um, I because of the shuttle delay. I ended up riding in the evening, and I just needed to straight shot it. It was like an extra fifty clicks from the okay. bridge. Uh, but yeah, just to have these like 
walls of trees and then completely knocked straight down. And then with all the roots showing, you, you know, just like tr- tree after tree after tree after tree are all, are all knocked down. Uh, someone had told me that over 50% of the trees in, in Prince Edward Island had either been knocked down or like damaged severely. Uh, and that is kind of what I observed. It's that's hard to imagine that much. Like that's area. crazy. Yeah. Uh, and it's funny because now you no longer need a compass in PEI because all the trees fell in the same direction. I believe that was uh, north to south because of the wind. <laughs> but all you need to do to figure out which direction you're going is just look at where all the all these logs are falling because they've all fallen in the exact same compass direction. That's crazy. <laughs> Oops, yeah, sorry, so I ended up trying to ride a route called the called the PEI Island Walk, which they just came up with a couple years ago. And mm-hmm. this is the idea is it's a 700 kilometer loop around the island going all the way to the southwest, to the northwest, to the northeast and the southeast points. And that hop, hops on and off the Confederation Trail, which is a bike path that runs tip to tip in PEI. But I didn't want to go back and forth on this trail. Also, the Confederation Trail was not clear to trees. It was about two and a half weeks after the hurricane. And yeah. that's not a priority, of course. Um, so I had to get on and off that uh when necessary but yeah uh for the most part i found that was a really really nice nice ride pei is just so stunningly beautiful you've got these red sandy beaches uh beautiful rock cliffs uh, as soon as you get outside of the central area uh like either onto the west side of the island or onto the east side of the island there's almost nobody or at least that was my experience mm. uh, and it was really beautiful riding on the roads i, I thought i thought the drivers were pretty respectful uh and it was really yeah, really beautiful. They had this uh, houses too. Yeah, when we were there in 2021, they had this um forget the name of the rocks, but it's, you know, some of this limestone type of rock that's eroded and it's like a giant top standing up on on the rock, you know, kind You might of be thinking of flower pot rock. Flower pot uh, rock, it's got destroyed, I you heard. Know, it got it got knocked down by the hurricane. That's yeah. that's how powerful this was. And and the average amount of coastal erosion they had was was over ten was around ten meters. Wow. Uh, so these dunes in PEI National Park, uh, they have before and after photos you can look up. Where it used to be this dune sloping down <coughs> into the ocean, it's quite now it's just a sand cliff. Wow. Uh, and and there were houses like not too far from the cliffs, like. When you're going towards yeah. Flower pot, pot Rock, you know? So I'm Absolutely, like, yeah. Some houses it? are now very close to the ocean. I'm not sure if any got knocked in in PEI, but some are, it will happen eventually. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I was talking to some people, some locals are like, you know, I'm pretty happy, you know, I didn't buy that land because we were looking at buying this land next to the ocean and oh, where wow. they were going to buy half their farm is, you know, now <laughs> falling into the, into the Atlantic. Uh, It'd be like your own part of the ocean, which would be pretty cool. Yeah. Um, So, what's really cool? One thing uh, that you went, uh, you went to the uh, Les Îles de Madeleine or Madeleine Islands. Oh yeah, I did. Right. Yeah, Um, (laughs) I forgot about that part. Yeah, you know that was kind of a spur of the moment decision. So coming around, and this is really unusual because I think most people would never think to go there. You know, no, it wouldn't even be part of uh, the route. Even the ferry to go there is not on the route to go to uh, PEI. So it comes from a little town called Suri. And the ferry runs, I think, uh, it's like Tuesday or Thursday and then Saturday, Sunday. So four times a week. And it's about a five-hour trip each way. And then Les Îles de la Madeleine are, or we call them the Magdalene Islands in English, uh, are very, very unique. These long, long uh, chain of islands, like this archipelago, beautiful, beautiful sandy dunes 
Uh, in some parts, there's actually some pretty large hills with some multicolored rock cliffs. Uh, and yeah, basically just happened that as I was passing Suri, I saw the ferry coming in and then, you know, it was leaving the other direction to go to the islands in like an hour. And I said, That's wild. might as well. Uh, and I only spent 32 hours there because I wanted to take the next ferry back. Uh, so I rode all the way tip to tip, which is like, I think, 180 kilometers round, round trip in that 32 hours. So it was quite a, quite a distance. I remember I shot straight to the north end because I had a, a huge tailwind that night. And then the, the next day I fought, I fought headwind all the way back to the south and then, mm. uh, and then tailwind back to the center to take the ferry off. And yeah, definitely a unique culture out there. That was, that was something special. What are, the, what are the people like? like I mean, it's, you gotta, like, I can imagine it's like, I don't feel like they get to, quote unquote, the mainland too often. They they must because I don't know if they what they have in terms of services. I'm sure okay. they have you know obviously they have grocery stores and everything. But if you want like specialized equipment, I'm sure they would mm. have to go into PEI. I guess so. Uh, yeah. yeah, they're very very friendly. You know, they're they're Quebecers and their industry is based on on tourism because it it uh, that's how they get most of their money in the summer. Uh, there was actually the one time that I had something thrown at me from a vehicle uh, was on on that island. <laughs> it was kind of. You know, I don't want to say it was my fault. But Get out of here, tourist. Again. And it was like, this This guy had thrown this this trash out of his window. Uh, and he had like pulled over, you know, like 500 meters away. And I was like, you know, I'll, I picked up the trash. And then when I passed him, I was like, hey, man, you dropped this. You, you know, like, don't, you shouldn't be littering. And tried to like hand it back to him. And he just like sped off. And then 15 minutes later, he rounded, rounded back again. And I just saw something flying towards me. I don't know what it was. He missed. But <laughs> I learned not to, not to try to tell people not to litter on the don't, side of the road. Don't tell me what to do, tourist. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, it is what it is. So coming so. back from the de Malin, do you still go to Surrey or is it like... Yeah, I guess, straight back huh? to Surrey. There's okay. only one ferry on and off. Uh, there, I think there's flights from Montreal. Or if, uh, yeah, I've seen, I've seen Montreal, some advertisements for traveling in Madeline, Magdalene Islands. Yeah. Yeah, but yeah, because because that ferry even from Surrey is is five hours. It's that's the only one that yeah. uh, that goes there. Yeah, and then I took the ferry uh, from Wood Islands PEI over to Nova Scotia. So I didn't I didn't end up looping all the way back into Charlottetown. And did you make it all the way down to Halifax? Or I did. Yeah. So I, <clears throat> I started going west actually from from Caribou and Picto uh, straight to Truro. Uh, rode along the the Bay of, of Fundy again. Uh, I went to the place called Burnt Coat Head, which I think has the actual <laughs> highest tides in the world. Oh, okay. Exact spot has the 16 meter tides. That's wow. very, very uh, beautiful spot. I made a really good friend there, and I ended up spending uh, spending a few uh, a few days actually traveling around Nova Scotia because she was going across Canada in a car, and so we ended up uh, seeing a bit of Nova Scotia there just on a road trip. Mm. So that was kind of a good break. So I think I'd only taken like one day off from Ottawa up until that point. Uh, and I went as far west as Middleton, which is close to the Bay of Fundy. It's in it's in a place called the Annapolis Valley. Okay. Uh, and you can ride these rail trails all the way around, all the way around the west side of PEI. But I was kind of starting to get pressed for time here. This was getting towards the end of October, and you know winter is coming pretty quick. So. Mm-hmm. I decided to not go all the way all the way out to Yarmouth, which uh, Yarmouth, which would have added in three to four days. And I cut from Middleton to to Lunenburg. Uh, that rail trail there was it was a nice ride because of all the fall colors. Except that was the spot where I ended up breaking four spokes in mm. one day. Uh, 
So I ended up having to get onto, onto the road just to be able to survive that. With From Middleton to Lunenburg, is it also a old rail line or? There, there is an old rail line. I've, uh, it must be an old rail line. I can't see why else that trail would be like that. Uh, but yeah. there is a road that parallels it too. So yeah, you can ride on that road. And, and the drivers in Nova Scotia and the people in Nova Scotia are very, very friendly. I found them very, very respectful of cyclists. Uh, and then from Lunenburg to Halifax, that's one of the, the top cycle trails in the province. It's the Rum Runners Trail. And that one is actually interesting because it allows ATVs in spots, but they've done such a good job of surfacing it that it's still an amazing ride. Mm. Uh, I had no, no issues with potholes or rough, rough terrain or anything. And did you leave the trail at all to go down like down along the peninsulas or like Peggy's Cove and all that kind of thing? No, I thought about going to Peggy's Cove, but I, I heard from some people saying that uh, because of the corners, it can be a kind of a dangerous ride. Oh, okay. Uh, and again, I just, I just wanted to start making time going east. Yeah. Uh, here. Yeah, I didn't take too many more detours from there. Uh, I mean, I followed a bit of the TCT. There are some tra- rail trails east of Halifax going down to some of these beaches. And I ended up going th- across on Highway Number 7, which follows the southern coast of Nova Scotia. And that's some beautiful country there as well. And then all the way to, to Sherbrooke, uh, this Nova Scotia town of Sherbrooke. Yeah. And then kind of cutting across to, to Guysboro. And then to, and then to, what is this? Uh, Port Hastings. Uh, that would be onto Cape Breton Island. Okay. Across the Canso Causeway. Yeah. And so between uh, between Sherbrooke and the Canso Causeway, it was mostly just like kind of secondary roads or, or quiet highway. And I feel like uh, the, was- I feel like the main part of Nova Scotia is much flatter than Cape Breton. I feel like Cape Breton's probably much hillier kind of. <laughs> Cape Breton has got a lot of hills. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah, and then there's a really good rail trail, the Celtic Shores Trail, that runs uh, along the first part of Cape Breton Island, and that brings you all the way to Inverness. Yeah, yeah, I think it goes past Inverness. Okay, uh, maybe maybe I'm mistaken there, uh, but the road was a pretty good ride, any, anyways. Uh, and then as soon as you get into the national park, you you immediately hit the hills. It's like the ocean's there, and then you're climbing up to. Uh, to 400 meters. Actually, you climb up to, I think, 150 right after Chetty Camp, and then you drop right back down to the ocean, and then you go up to mm. 450. Uh, and they're, they're quite steep, but inside the National Park, the shoulders on the road are really, really good because uh, they have the, the funds to actually develop the roads with the right infrastructure. Yeah. Uh, so the ride around the Cabot Trail, which is the one that goes around that uh, north side of Cape Breton Island, is really decent. Although when it, there's some sections where it goes in between parts of the national park. So you're going to go from this like really, really nice road. And all of a sudden it's going to be like broken pavement with no shoulder and a lot of people. Cause there's villages there. And it's like, Whoa, this is kind of dramatic change, but otherwise the, the Cabot trail is a great ride. Yeah. I've heard really good things about the Cabot trail from people. Yeah. Unfortunately I was there maybe like a week after the peak of the fall colors or, or a week and a half. And it seemed like every single day, about 50% of the remaining leaves on the trees were falling. So yeah, it just gets, it goes from like nice reds, the nice reds to just brown. Yeah, exactly. But you know, again, you can't be everywhere at once. No, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And um, so heading over Newfoundland, did you ride the trailway or is that just too much for your bike? Yeah, so the, the trailway in Newfoundland is 950 kilometers of an old rail line, uh, the Newfie bullet uh, train that ran from Porto Basque all the way to St. John's. 
and it has all been developed now as a multi-use recreational trail, primarily used by ATVers. So it's very, very rough. Uh, I do not recommend it to anybody on a touring bike. I think you'd need a fat bike or a mid fat, maybe minimum, like a, a hard, a hard tail with, with 2.6 inches to have a good time. So I wrote a few sections of it just to, you know, get off the highway every once in a while and kind of see the scenery. Cause it's absolutely beautiful. As soon as you, I mean, Newfoundland is spectacular everywhere, no matter what. And the trans so yeah. highway has a great shoulder, but you know, when you're in this like wilderness with bog all around you and beautiful colors, they actually have tamarack trees with the, the uh, yellow evergreens, uh, the ones that their needles change colors. So I did see a bunch of those in Newfoundland. Um, and then I took the highway all the way up to, to Deer Lake. And from Deer Lake, I did opt to get onto the, the trailway. Oh, okay. Uh, T apostrophe railway as it is spelled. Yeah, T railway. Yeah, cut across this central Newfoundland plateau. It's about 130 kilometers from Deer Lake out to Badger. Out to Badger. Yeah, okay. Uh, and that was very, very rough. Despite having this like 50 kilometer an hour tailwind, it took me two and a half days to do 100. So why foot. why did you opt to do that? Just is that just because it's a little bit shorter than taking the uh, Trans Canada Highway? Or? Uh, it's about the same distance as the highway. I mean, maybe it shaves off some distance, but definitely not some time. Yeah. I just wanted to actually kind of see, I figured if I was going to get on the trail at some point, that was going to be the best okay. part. It was the most remote uh, and it goes over this, this high plateau. And I ended up actually seeing a bunch of caribou. There was a herd of nine caribou I ended up seeing oh. outside of Deer Lake. It That's was wild. so special to have, have these animals coming down the, the trail towards me. And again, I watched them for, for almost an hour probably. Uh, so yeah, there's 30,000 caribou in Newfoundland and, and over 100,000 moose. And oh, wow. I didn't know there's that much. I only saw one moose, which I almost ran into in the middle of the night, and uh, <laughs> nine caribou. As you do. Yeah, as you do, yeah. yeah. I was pretty lucky because, you, you know, moose can – I was actually there a couple weeks after the, uh, the rut. And, oh, you know, you don't want to be, you don't wanna be uh, up against a moose when it's, uh, when it's in heat. No, from what I've, I've heard statistically that you, I mean, have a much higher chance of being killed by a moose than a bear. And moose are vehicle, yeah. very yeah. territorial, yeah. even like for people, hikers and stuff, super yes. territorial. Yes. So yeah. where a bear will just wander off, a moose likely won't. Yeah, especially in mid, mid-October when they're in that uh, mating season for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a dangerous time for them. Uh, how are how are the roads like? How is the highway cycling through Newfoundland? Like, because I imagine it's it's kind of like the one and only way you can go. I mean, it's like the road that crosses the island. Yeah, um, it's a great it's a great road, honestly. Is beautiful, it? beautiful sights, uh, good shoulder, uh, very good tarmac, uh, quite hilly in some in some mm-hmm. spots. Uh, you, yeah, you're going to be going up and down a lot. Uh, the prevailing wind should be from the west, and that is what I had. So I had good tailwind all the okay. way across Newfoundland. Yeah, I feel like uh, I feel like Cape Breton's a warm up for Newfoundland. <laughs> you go ride Cape Breton. And remember, I was I was doing that with uh, with 30, 30 uh, cogs on my small chainring and right. thirty four cassettes. So I, my gearing was not the best. Like I had some pretty pretty big quads after after Cape Breton. Sweet. Sure. <laughs> yeah, it's coming handy now. You know, now with the twenty six again, it's uh, everything feels easy. And um, yeah, how was it getting to St. John's and Cape Spear and? Having reached that, uh, yes. Yeah, so, so, so actually, uh, just before I got to St. John's, mm-hmm. uh, I had I had rescheduled my flight initially. I'd planned to fly it on November seventh, and I knew I wasn't going to make it, so I scheduled it to the thirteenth. And I had a couple extra days, and I was looking at the distance that I had accumulated over over the course of the entire trip across Canada, and I realized that if I added on, you know, one little extra 
peninsula, I would get just over 15,000 kilometers across, oh, nice. across Canada. So I decided to go over the, uh, the Bonavista Peninsula, which is known for, one, it's very, very high winds, and two, it's uh, stunning natural, natural uh, landscapes. Uh, some big rock towers kind of into the ocean right at the end of it. Uh, so I ended up camping. On Where's the Bonavista Peninsula? Peninsula? Uh, just north of the Avalon Peninsula, which is the one that St. John sits on. Okay. Uh, kind of on the eastern end of Newfoundland. Distance-wise, about halfway between St. John's and Twillingate, which is famous for its icebergs. Oh, okay. If you type in Bonavista, you'll you'll find it. Okay. Uh, so I camped right at the tip of that, uh, right by the lighthouse. There, there's a municipal park there which has a picnic shelter. And I had, I had heard about this picnic shelter and planned to sleep in the picnic shelter to get out of the wind. Oh, okay. And when I got there, I found the picnic shelter was completely boarded up. The windows were shuttered and locked. The door was shuttered and locked. I could not get in. I, I tried to get in and, and I could not manage. So I just had to do what I had to do and kind of put the tent as close as possible to the building to shelter from the winds that were happening. Uh, and I thought that was going to be okay. But in the middle of the night, the winds like shifted like 90 degrees and I got broadsided by 50 knot winds, 93 kilometer an hour winds. And my tent just, that tent is done. That, that was the last of that. Tent. Oh, and what tent was it? I had a Mech Spark 2, which okay. is what I was using across Canada. Um, yeah, fairly cheap tent. And I, had, I actually had that for about six years. So, you know, at that overall point, though, I like, had, I mean, cheap tent cost wise, but how was it? Uh, I mean, if you had it six years, it's good durability, you know? Yeah, and I, I camped quite a lot. Like, I got a lot of nights of use out of that, so it, it had a good lifespan. But um, it basically has this kind of triangular system for the poles from the corners into the one that goes across. And when I got broadsided, it kind of ripped ripped that pole out. And that had already happened, and I had fixed it and super glued it and duct taped it all together uh, and tried to get replacement pieces, but Mech wasn't making the same pole oh, no. or the same okay. connector again, so they couldn't uh, they couldn't give me a new a new part for it. And unfortunately, I yeah, just even the, du- the duct tape and the super glue did not hold it together. So the pole collapsed and that leaves the tent half standing. And then it ripped through the fly and then it fully collapsed on me. And I was so exhausted at this point. It was like three o'clock in the morning. I, I just like was in my sleeping bag and like the tent was collapsed on me. And I just like went back to bed. I was like, I'm, t- I'm dealing with this in the morning. I don't feel like getting out of bed right now. Yeah. There's these 93 kilometer hour winds. Um, yeah, so that was unfortunate, but it is what it is. It's kind of a good story, you know, for the end of the adventure. I managed to put you survived. it up halfway the next night uh, and get another night out of it. Um, yeah, you know, the more practical thing to do would be to literally just wrap myself in a rain fly and then, and then just sleep on the ground. But it was raining, so I kind of oh, wanted to be dry in the tent. Uh, yeah, and then rode all the way into St. John's. Uh, went up through the trail and Conception Bay South. And after Conception Bay South... Everyone who's going to St. John's, I recommend going this way because that's the only part of the trailway that doesn't allow ATVs, and it's really, really uh, nice. okay. Yeah, and that brings you right into into downtown St. John's, and then yeah, spent uh, what like two hours sleeping in downtown St. John's because <laughs> I think I got in there at one in the morning, and then I wanted to see the the sunrise from Cape Spear, which is the most eastern point uh, of North America. Nice. Uh, so yeah, that's quite a big climb. It's uh, in 16 kilometers, you do about uh, 300 meters of, of elevation gain. And then, you know, if you go back to St. John's, which you will have to, unless you hire a taxi, you're going to have to do that again. Oh, <laughs> so, so you actually go think, over a hill, huh? 
you gotta after you after you reach the end, you got to do another 300 meters of elevation gain just to get back into the city. So I think that was actually my highest ratio of elevation gain to distance was on that last day, just yeah. doing those 30 kilometers. Uh, and there wasn't much of a sunrise, but you know, I was there at sunrise at the easternmost point of North America, and it's at this pretty. Point, I was just happy to be. Go ahead, yeah. I was gonna say it's just pretty wild that you cycled 15,000 kilometers, like when you know. It, most people that would know cycling across Canada is about what, 7,700 kilometers or so. I believe um, that's what the trans Canada highway is. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And, but I mean, if you're going to follow the trans Canada trail with your, you know, add ons and zigzags and, you know, taking, I mean, trans Canada trail has lots of branches and taking the more Southern branch through Tobermory and whatnot. And that way, like 15,000, that's a lot, man. That's like, 15,000, I think it was 15,073.8 or something I had tracked to be, to uh, be we'll exact just, We'll it. just ignore that 73.8. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. It, it was a nice round number to finish on, but I was happy I cleared, I cleared that milestone. You know, it felt uh, pretty uh, nice accomplishing and 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 only because we're over two hours now and uh i know it's been a long time um, i just i do want to ask you like where so now you're in portugal what's your what's your route what's your plan over the next i don't know one year uh six months yeah whatever i don't know how long so yeah so after talking two hours about canada you know now i'll try to go through everything else in two minutes so yeah the idea now is i flew into porto in portugal and i've so far ridden uh down through lisbon and down through uh, Villanova de Milfontes, which is where I'm right, I am right now. I'm going to follow the south, south coast of Portugal. Uh, I'll probably go inland in Spain. It depends on the weather, uh, but I'm going to try to follow the Mediterranean as south in Europe as I can okay. to, you know, to keep things warm. It's actually about 20, 20 degrees here. I'm running in shorts and a t-shirt. That's it's amazing. Fantastic weather. <laughs> Except the humidity is high. Portugal has had insane rain the last week. We've had a lot of uh, okay. Uh, yeah, it's it's abnormal weather. Uh, originally, I had planned to go through Italy, but now I'm actually thinking of going through the Balkans. Are you going to uh, go down to Gibraltar just to, to kind of... No, I don't think I'm going to go no. through Gibraltar. Uh, it, it, it's going to add a little bit out of the way. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think I'm just going to cross through through Seville. There's a few cities I want to see between Seville and uh, the coast, Ronda and Olvera. But but we'll see. Uh, I've I've just heard that the cycling along the Mediterranean coast of Spain isn't as good as it is in the in the center. Okay. But again, if it you know if snow falls and it gets below zero, then I'll have to take things as they come. Yeah. So Spain into uh, France, France to Italy. Is that the? Yeah, and then and then probably into the Balkans. Now, nice. Okay. Even from when we actually talked, uh, which was two weeks ago. Things have changed. Croatia has now been accepted into the Schengen zone, and that will happen as of January first. So oh. big bonus for freedom of movement between countries, big drawback for people who only have 90 days for a Schengen visa to right. cross Europe. Uh, so now I'm actually thinking of going through there this time around uh, and then going through the Baltics down into Greece and then down Balkans. into Istanbul. <laughs> Not the Baltics. Yeah. Sorry, the Balkans. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Into Istanbul. Okay. I'm going to go through Turkey, uh, probably try to ride... Uh, southwest into turkey down to the turkish riviera and then along the southeast coast or the south coast mm-hmm. visiting cappadocia and you know all those uh famous spots up through the caucasus through georgia nice. uh, and azerbaijan is open uh, as you, as you said the other week yeah that's what i've heard i believe yeah. um i mean I'll, I'll be there next spring anyway so that's a lot of time to figure that out 
Yeah, uh, I would love to go of... through Iran, but politically, it is uh, you know. Well, yeah, it's right a, it's actually even without the protests, uh, it's an impossibility for Canadians for the most part. You know, it's yeah, you have to get sponsored by someone yeah. in Iran and and put a big application in within Canada, I believe. Like, yeah, and they're they're not. Yeah, we I did mine when I was in Malaysia, but like my wife's mother went to the Foreign Affairs Office to apply, and you know she had to answer a million questions and. You know, it it wasn't it wasn't easy. It's was like he's coming to propose. Okay, and then we didn't propose. Oh, yeah, and the next okay. time, like I thought he was supposed to be married already. He's like, no, no, he came, and uh, now he's coming back to meet other family. And so, like, it worked a couple times. Um, now we're married, so no problem. But yeah, it's it's hard. It's not a. It's not. Yeah, easy. are you able to go back now? That yeah, your I, wife is Iranian. Yeah, 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 definitely. And um, yeah. I wouldn't. We would. We wouldn't go for now. Like not with the way things yes. are. Um, even next summer, our thoughts are to go to Europe. Um, maybe travel to Turkey and have her family come to Turkey and meet up. Oh, nice. Well, if you're there in like um, March through May, you can you can hit oh, me up. It'd be more like July. <laughs> uh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, anyways, yeah, I'll probably take the boat across the Caspian Sweet. Sea. Go the go the traditional route over the Silk Road through Uzbekistan, Tajikistan. Uh, it'd be Kyrgyzstan. so worth it. Yeah. Yeah. Ride the whole Pamir Highway. Uh, ride all the way up uh, as much as I can in Kyrgyzstan, and then you know the dream was actually to go into China via. They call it, yeah, the Torgart Pass, except that you get into some some logistical issues with the permitting there uh, oh, okay. because it's in western China in Xinjiang province, mm-hmm. and that can be difficult. And I would love to ride the Karakoram Highway all the way down into Pakistan and then continue on into India. To get from Pakistan into India, you have to go all the way down to the Wagah border uh, near Lahore. Mm-hmm. And I think because of security concerns, they recommend you don't actually cycle outside of the Himalaya in India, pretty much all the way from Gilgit down through Islamabad to Lahore would be like a big detour, probably about a thousand kilometer detour just to get what is actually about a, less than a hundred kilometer distance to the resumption of the highway in India. They used to connect, uh, okay. but you know, their, yeah, their yeah, relations yeah. are, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'll ride, I'll ride the Indian Himalaya for sure down the Lehmanali Highway, and I got some other stuff listed there. That's cool. I have a lot of stuff listed in India. Uh, whether I actually cycle through there or decide to take a break at that point and you know do train or bus or something, so much could knows? change too from now to then. So much like, can change. Yeah. yeah, so I'll probably end up flying from somewhere there because uh, yeah, Myanmar is not possible right now, and Tibet's not possible. Oh, is it not possible uh, so again in Myanmar? I think, well, uh, maybe you can actually go through there, but I think because of the, I think there's a military dictatorship and a civil war. Well, you, you on, can so. cycle through Myanmar, but I, yeah, it depends on what the political situation is one yeah. one week to the next. Um, exactly. I know people do travel through. You're not allowed to wild camp. You have to stay in hotels. Um, you're not allowed to bring your drone, so you'd have to mail it forward maybe to like, uh, to, there's a really good bike shop in um, Chiang Mai that's really famous, Black Hats. Um, oh, yeah, okay. So yeah. maybe you could mail some stuff forward to there and then... Yeah, if I end up going through Myanmar, I'll do that for sure. I don't want to yeah. be put in prison for three months yeah. flying my drone over the presidential palace. Right. Yeah. I mean, I'm very careful with it. Like, I, I'm actually, I follow the laws uh, pretty closely because, I, you know, that stuff can get you in a lot of trouble yeah, if you're yeah. in the wrong place. And I try to be respectful. Awesome. Well, I do look forward to following your adventures. I'd hate to cut it off here, but I know my, my wife, uh, we have guests. So today is Yalda in, in Iran, the oh, 21st, sure. yeah, of, got, 21st of December. Is the yeah. longest night of yeah. the year, and it's a it's a traditional holiday in Iran, and we have some guests coming in about thirty five minutes. So, uh, if I don't get yeah. off soon, she will murder me. Seconds, I'll run through everything. Go really for quick. it. Yeah, 
Yeah. So I'll fly from uh, Nepal or India into Southeast Asia. I'll do the Southeast Asia loop, Thailand, Cambodia, Laos, Vietnam. Then I'll go to South Korea. South Korea's got amazing cycling networks. Then I'll go to Japan. I'll ride Japan south to north. And then at that point, it'll be two years since starting in Canada. So who knows whether I want to take a break. But if I decide to keep going, it would be America's top to bottom and then Africa to North Cape. Awesome. Well, we will uh, we will reconnect. That's a long time. We will reconnect at some point and have a, a fuller Absolutely. in-depth run through of uh, maybe Europe and Eurasia, you know, and then uh, and then we can yeah, do that. Yeah. Well, you know, I'll actually have to come back to Canada at some point to, well, to for insurance reasons and to visit. Canada. Yeah, that's so right. I'll link up with you in Chelsea properly. Cool. This time. All right. That'd be great. All right, man. Well, I'm going to say bye in a second. But um, before that, where can people find you and follow your your kind of adventure and what's going on? If they search up uh, my name, Nathan Starzinski, which I'm assuming will be in the title I'll of the podcast, uh, you will find me. Instagram, YouTube are the main places right now. And Strava, actually, probably Strava is my, my most active. I'm trying to get better at Instagram. Yeah, yeah. YouTube will be better as well. Awesome. Dude, thanks so much for your time. Uh, yeah, it's too bad we didn't record this like two weeks ago when you were here in Chelsea. But uh, I know, yeah. I mean, it I'm was, pretty last minute. So I, yeah, I emailed exactly. you like less than 24 hours before I was flying out. <laughs> Yeah. So, and next time, give me at least two days notice. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I will do it. Yeah. Yeah. All right, Nathan, thanks for chatting. And um, yeah, I look forward to, to seeing where you end up next. So. All right, Chris, all the best. Keep on pedaling. Bye-bye. Okay. Cheers. All right, everyone. I hope you guys enjoyed that episode with Nathan. It's really unfortunate, like, as I mentioned at the start, that I wasn't able to release the episode with Chris Lee ahead of time because I, I was really looking forward to that contrast between, you know, Chris Lee and his friends riding the more traditional cross Canada by, you know, the paved roads or um, the more common routes uh, versus Nathan's crossing on the transcontinental trail and a lot of gravel and, you know, pushing his bike sometimes for hours on end. So I thought it would have been a really, really cool contrast. And unfortunately, it didn't work out that way. But I'm super happy to have had a chance to chill with Nathan for a couple hours in a cafe and get the most out of this episode with him and, and kind of hear hear it in uh, in grander detail, you know. So, Nathan, thank you so much and uh, keep in touch, buddy. Bye-bye. I want to end the show by thanking all my listeners once again for the emails and comments I regularly receive from you. It really helps motivate me and keep me going with this project and to continue sharing people's amazing stories. If you have questions or comments, you can email me at bike at bikepackadventures.ca or go to bikepackadventures.ca and shoot me a message through the contact form. You can also check out the webpage for past podcast episodes, bikepacking routes throughout Canada, blog posts, videos, and touring tips. Lastly, I'd like to once again thank all the individuals and companies that are supporting the podcast. If you are enjoying the show and like what I'm doing, you can become one of my show supporters by going to patreon.com slash bikepackadventures. And for just a few dollars a month, you can help keep this show going. You can also help out by sending a one-time donation through PayPal. This money all goes back into the podcast, help me to cover the costs associated with running the show, buy new equipment when necessary, and produce the high-quality content that you've become accustomed to. Much appreciated, and keep on pedaling.